Hello and welcome to episode 220 of Some Like It Scott. I'm your host Scott Harvey and I'm joined as always by my co-host Scott Schell. And today we're finally putting a bow on the year that was as we'll be revealing our top 10 films of 2022. But before we do that, how are you, Scott? And do you have any general thoughts about 2022 in film that you'd like to share before we get into the lists? Sure. Yeah, I'm doing first off doing great. It was a long week at work. Um, it is over since finishing my week of work. I have rewatched one of my favorite movies of the year. I have rewatched one of my favorite movies of all time. And now I get to talk about the year that was 2022 and all of my favorite movies. So really, I don't really think and it's a long weekend. Forgot to mention that as well. I know not everyone gets to celebrate the long weekend. Yeah, I know. Uh, I did not. I did not have President's Day. No, sorry, that's next month. Martin Luther King Jr. Day off until uh, all going through school. My first job. It is only at NBC Universal, which for the first time I'm <laughs> receiving that as a holiday. But I will say, so benefit for me long weekend. Got to watch some great movies since the end of the work week. Getting to talk about 2022. High level thoughts, Scott. Not a bad year in film. I'm going to say that. This is going to get borne out in the list as we go but i would say in most ways not a better year than 2021 big way it was a better year than 2021 absolute blockbuster rips like who baby did did movies did did big movies rock this year for the most part i mean also we could talk about the stinkers too but why talk about the stinkers when there's a handful of you know four and a half star plus films out there to talk about that were all like a hundred million dollars plus to make so, you know, I would say maybe none of them quite the quite as good as Avengers Endgame, but honestly, some of them that level. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point to make because it feels like we probably are generally pretty negative about sort of the direction of, um, you know, blockbuster yeah. mainstream cinema and everything. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I think if you look back at the year, of course, you know, there were there were plenty of duds. Um, in that department, but also some movies that maybe we didn't even expect um, sure. some blockbusters to be quite as monumental as they ended up being, um, you know, yeah. showed up. And, and looking back at the year and in blockbusters, like, you know, you have, for my money, three films that are solidly sort of all timers in, in that camp. So um, oh, I yeah. think not a bad year at all. Um, two, two of which actually turned out to be the highest two grossing movies of the year. So, I mean, you know, um, that that is also an encouraging sign that um, th- those two movies, which are not Marvel films, are not really linked to a big brand name, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. you know, well. did. I mean, yeah, it depends on what you want to consider brand name, I suppose. You, you've, you've, you've put on your cap of Avatar has no cultural impact. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I mean, James Cameron, I guess, is a brand name is what I'm saying. But in terms of yeah, yeah, corporate yeah. IP, I guess, uh, you know, it, they weren't in those camp. They were the two highest grossing movies of the year, and they were very, very good. So um, it's it's hard to, I guess, complain when you put it in that sort of uh, frame of reference. But I agree with you in general. Scott, it was not a bad year. I do think I probably prefer 2021. In looking at my top 10 list, I probably had an overall stronger list in 2021. But it wasn't hard to put together a list of 10 films that I really, really loved from the year. And, you know, the the top of the list is still quite strong, in my opinion. Um, I mean, maybe it's just very different. It's just very different than last year. Yeah. In terms of like the top of my list. 
And that's good. I wouldn't want to be the same every year. Maybe we say this often, but it's more sort of in the upper third to middle third of the list where it's like, that's how you can really say, well, what kind of a year was it? Did we still have, were we still having like four star movies in like our thirties and forties range? Or, you know, did we, no, did, no did, we does were it not. decline after the, the top 20? And yeah, pro- probably not uh, for, for 2022. But um, so, so maybe that's where ultimately we can say it wasn't quite as successful as 2021 but look it was a great year i saw 85 movies i think total um yeah you know prior to making this list so yeah it's going to be a a fun time talking about uh, our favorites of the year because some of these movies we never even talked about on the podcast really we never did a full review of so um this will be sort of our first first opportunity to talk about them Before we do that, however, we do have to get some other business out of the way. We do always do this first before, you know, getting into the good of the year, of which there was a lot again, as we're saying. But it is time to take a moment and highlight our worst film of 2022. Um, Again, we saw quite a lot of films. I saw 85. You probably saw around that, if not more. Yeah. Um, So there were not all of them are good. Um, it's just it's just not realistic. It's just not going to happen. Uh, but Scott, in terms of those films that were not quite as successful, what did you feel was the one film that you came out of feeling the most hollow and empty inside, I guess? Scott, there were, I'd say, two to three that I really felt this way about this year. You're going to you're going to talk about one of my one of the other of the ones I'm not going to mention. You're going to talk about one of them. Um, because I think that it honestly, if truth be told, probably is my least favorite movie of the year, but to be different and because not because I had had any expectations for this film, but because it was a Pixar movie and it was a spinoff of a franchise that is, you know, arguably one of the best consistently best franchises of all time before this movie, I think is what made it just so hollow and depressing walking out of theater and that movie, if you haven't guessed it already is Lightyear, a film that was just one of the most brutal disappointments of the year for me. Again, not because I had high expectations, but because the movie is just frankly, it's just barely watchable at best. Um, And I, you know, I just was really bummed out (laughs) by that. I don't really have many other more thoughts. If you really care about my thoughts about this, I guess you can go back and listen to my, listen to all my thoughts on the podcast we did about this movie. But a huge, 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 huge disappointment, Um, especially from Pixar. I think it might be Pixar's worst movie. If not, it's definitely bottom of the barrel. I haven't seen some of the car sequels, which might compete with it. Um, The Good Dinosaur. Actually, I've seen The Good Dinosaur. I think this is not not recently enough to to make a bold like to make a statement about whether or not it's better or worse Mm -hmm. or the same as this. But. Yeah, it's just a, a real disappointment coming from the Toy Story franchise and the fact that it was the first Pixar film back in theaters since the pandemic started. Like we'd gotten, what, four Pixar movies, three Pixar movies, um, you know, straight to Disney Plus between Soul and Luca and Turning Red. All of which are, you know, All of which significantly are significantly better, better than this. Than this movie. Yeah. yeah. You know, so a lot of people probably saw Onward on Disney Plus. I was lucky enough to see that in the theater right before the pandemic started. Um, and then to get this film back in the theater, you know, it was it was really monumentally disappointing. 
that said, I'm not out on Pixar. I mean, their next movie is Elemental, I think, next year, which is, I believe, a Pete Doctor joint um, who also directed Soul. He's their head of the studio over there. And I have a lot of faith in him. Inside Out still one of, if not my favorite, Pixar films. And the teaser that they released uh, around Christmas time, which I think I saw before Strange World or maybe another, maybe Avatar even. I can't remember off the top of my head which movie I saw in front of. But, um, you know, that that looks really intriguing, really interesting. And, you know, I think Pixar and I think I think it's safe to say, I mean, Toy Story is amazing, some of their best movies. But I think in recent years, they're often at their best when they're doing something different and new. Um, you know, the sequels have not always been the strongest uh, points for them recently. Granted, they're not doing a ton of them, but um, I'm excited to, to the fact that we get to go back into something more akin to an inside out versus, you know, mining IP with Pixar. Yeah, uh, I mean, this this movie was was quite poor. And, you know, I will I do have to say, you know, you said you had no expectations for it. I do think it was mentioned that our most anticipated episode, maybe in your honorable mentions or something like that. So, oh, I'm yeah, sure that the, no, 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 I'm sure yeah. I'm sure that it was. So I, I mean, but by mm -hmm. the time the movie had come out, like the reviews were terrible, like my expectations right, were moderated right, yeah. by the time I walked into the theater. Um, no, that is a fair point. I think it, I think it was probably on my honorable mentions. Um from yeah, the anticipated was, episode but but by the time it's like june whatever rolled around like it was not yeah. there anymore <laughs> yeah yeah i mean this is definitely in my bottom five or ten for the year as well i mean it, it's just lazy it really is like and, and even the marketing leading into the film of like what exactly is this film supposed to be um is this you know the film that andy saw or whatever but then also there's this it's a 90s movie watching it with the toys like it the lore is got very confusing and it became increasingly Did it not seem like a 90s were... movie to you multiverse no uh, it seemed it seemed increasingly clear that they were just trying to you know say hey here's something you guys like buzz lightyear now you know you guys are just monkeys banging symbols together and so we're just going to put buzz lightyear on the screen and you're going to clap and we're going to be ha you know everyone's going to be happy and no i wasn't happy not... and, and like you said it seems to sting even worse because um, you know, I would have loved to see Soul or Luca on the big screen, uh, but instead we got this. So disappointing to say the least, Scott. Um, and all I'll say I'm is, uh, thank I God could... Kiki Palmer featured in a different movie that was better than this this year. Yeah, yeah, certainly not. Um, you know, giving up on Pixar, but that was a discouraging step for them. Hopefully, they can right the ship going forward. Um, but yeah, Lightyear, not not one to remember, certainly from 2022. And Scott, uh, moving on to my worst film of the year, you know, I think I always kind of go on a diatribe here about, you know, the, the purpose of worst films list, because nowadays it seems sure. like, you, you know, used to be used to be pub, every publication would put out a worst list. You know, you would have Siskel and Ebert doing their worst of the year episode. It was just it was common, you know, common parlance to do this. Nowadays, it's like a single newspaper puts out a worst list and everyone on Twitter is like, how could you do this? Like, this is so despicable. This it's is like dog pile you know, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It like and the, the point that they keep coming back to is but it's so difficult to get a movie made. Like, it, don't you just understand how hard it is to make a movie um, kind of like this participation trophy type um rationale i guess which i do understand it's in some regards like you know if if these people were going out of their way to pick on you know 
this is not even a bad film, right? But there's a movie out now called Skin of Marink, which is kind of a cult horror mm-hmm. movie, for example. And it it was cost like twelve thousand dollars to make, right? If people are going out of their way to pick on films that made like twelve that cost like twelve thousand dollars to make and calling them the worst film what's of the, the year, what's the point? Yeah, what's the point of that? I understand. However, that is not the case. Uh, that is mostly not the case for what these publications are doing. And as the, re- critics, the differences that you're talking about too is that like hard to get a movie made but like those people like the people that we're talking about they're getting paid like these people are getting yeah, paid the, it's not movies. hard for it's them not like the guy making skin it, it's Marines really not yeah yeah it's really not hard for them to get a movie made and as critics you know the the purpose is to give an honest opinion on film so that you know you can sort of caution consumers give mm-hmm. consumers an expectation of you know should they be seeking this out should they not be seeking this out and to sort of um, you know, be tastemakers, so to speak, for the culture, right? Like that is what a critic is is supposed to do in some regards. And so if if a movie is very bad, it is fine to call a spade a spade and say, hey, you need to stay away from this movie because it's not worth your time. It's not worth your money. You know, mm-hmm. all, all of that jazz. So I don't have a problem. Now, the Razzies is a whole different thing. That just seems like, uh, that's dumb. you know, uh, yeah, overkill. But if you want to make a worse list, that's fine. Uh, and I think, you know, I bring this up because in the case of my worst film of the year, it's a film that, you know, the director was given a lot of money to make. There were a, a ton of stars in this film. Um, he's an Academy Award nominated director. And, you know, it for all intents and purposes, this film should have been good. Uh, but also at the same time, from a, on a moral standpoint, this person probably should not have even been able to make this movie in the first place. So I have no qualms whatsoever about calling out David O. Russell um, and his film Amsterdam, which was by far the worst film that I saw this year um, and one of the worst films I've seen in years. Um, it's completely incoherent, Scott. The plot is incomprehensible, you know, very hard to follow, and you don't even want to follow it because it's so boring and not engaging. Um, he tries to do this sort of screwball type, you know, heightened comedy, and it just falls so flat and just ends up confusing you even worse. You know, he has such a star-studded cast in this movie, Margot Robbie, John David Washington, um, Christian Bale, Anya Taylor-Joy, Rami Malek, Robert De Niro, the list goes on, right? None of them are giving particularly inspiring performances. In the case of somebody like John David Washington, they're actually quite bad in the film. Um, Yes. And... It is just an exercise in, you know, I'll use the word again, laziness. It is it is a lazy film. It feels like it is made by somebody who has no passion or interest in movies anymore. He just thinks, you know, again, sort of the same comment I made about Lightyear. We're going to put all of these stars in front of the camera and then, you know, what, you guys can figure it out. And the audience will be fine because they're looking at pretty shiny people. Um, and no, audiences are not that dumb. Well, some of them aren't. Um, and you know, we actually need things like a coherent plot humor that even makes the least bit of sense. And just somebody acting like they care really at the end of the day, somebody acting like they care about the movie and you don't really get any of that with Amsterdam. Um, it, it is just, you know, a disaster on every level and, you know, it is laughable and it it, embarrassing. I'm not even going to go on a moral diatribe about you know, it's embarrassing that these people would work with David O. Russell or whatever. Fine, whatever. You got your paycheck. It's embarrassing that you would read the script to this film and then say, yeah, this seems like something that I want to sign on to. 
Um, that's that's the most embarrassing thing to me. And, um, you know, it was not a good year for Margot Robbie, in my opinion. Um, I still think she's a great actress. She's a powerful person in Hollywood. She's just, you know, great producer as well. And, you know, she's hopefully going to come back strong with Babylon. But, I mean, not with Babylon, with uh, Barbie next year. She did not okay. come back strong with Babylon. I've got a spoiler for you, Scott. <laughs> yeah, with Barbie next year. But, um, yeah, it's just disappointing to see so many people that I am big fans of in this film. Um, that is just a complete waste of time and disaster. And if yeah. I had not been reviewing it for the podcast, Scott, I think I would have walked out of this movie in theaters because there was a point about halfway through where I was like, I would rather be literally anywhere else than watching this movie. Yeah. Like I mentioned before, I talked about Lightyear. This is certainly uh, this is at the rock bottom of my list. If you just when you know, when I make my list public on Letterboxd, this film is at rock bottom. Um it's horrible. It's, it, it's funny that I didn't actually rate this the lowest of any movie I saw this year. I actually rated Moonfall lower, but I had a good time watching that movie um, because I, I had wouldn't a pretty say full I had a crowd. good time. I mean, I, I know we, we talked about the differences in our experiences watching this movie because mm -hmm. um, like your theater was like basically empty and mine was like mostly full and people were hooting and hollering in my movie, but at, which is the right way, I think, to consume Moonfall. But Amsterdam, you know, I, I really I really tried to give it an uh, uh an honest open-minded take and scott you you had warned me that that the film is literally incoherent um quite early on and i i was aghast at how incoherent the plot of this film is at some point literally not even understanding entirely what had happened in scenes um it's that bad i, I feel like the, like this might have this I feel like some element might have been testing chat GPT before it went public. Maybe like it's not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. It does uh, feel AI. Reference. Yeah. It does feel AI generated in a lot of ways, you know, just to some of the comments I'm making. Yeah. yeah like, and it, the thing is, it's based on a real historical event. You could, to Scott's point, you could literally read the Wikipedia page and have a more engaging and coherent experience with the story. Well, I certainly would understand what I would, what, whatever happened because I didn't understand really yeah. what was going on yeah. in the film at all, to be honest. I didn't know what was driving yeah. the plot along. I couldn't, I mean, it, granted, it's been months now since I've seen it and I have not thought about it very much since then, but like I couldn't tell you what happened in that movie yet. Like a week, like, like, a, like three hours after it. I mean, literally when we did the podcast, I'm pretty sure I couldn't have told you what had happened in the film. I don't know. It, it was a real, it was a really horrible film. Okay, Scott, but yeah, to put, you know, just sort of to put a bow on it, I guess I would say in general, I have no, uh, I will sleep easy at night, you know, after putting, after devoting a section to our worst films of the year. I don't think we really have anyone clutching their pearls out there about this, probably in our listener base. But, um, you know, in, in the case of the two films we picked, I think it's important that these big studios and creators be held somewhat accountable for their, you know, the travesties that they put into the world and that's all I'll yeah say about such a that. such a shame i couldn't say my next one which was elvis oh well <laughs> don't worry darling also in the conversation but oh, let's move sure. on scott it's time for the reason we came here which is to talk about our favorite movies of the year um and before we get into our top 10 it was such you know it was such a good year and we saw so many films that as always it doesn't feel right to just only highlight 10 so I'm going to throw it over to you to run down your 20 through 11 for us, the movies that just missed out on your top 10, but that you still really love from 2022. 
Yeah, you know, th- there's even a couple. Uh, I will, and it's always a great sign when we do this. You know, we d- we talked about maybe the thirty through forty range not being as strong, but even in my top twenty five, like the next five movies that didn't make the cut for me, fun movies. Would recommend them. Um, but we're not here to talk about twenty one through twenty five, Scott. We're here to talk about twenty through eleven, like you mentioned. So just to kick things off, my number twenty is the Inspection, a twenty four film, the closing night film at the New York Film Festival. I didn't really know much about the film going into it. It is directed by Elegance Bratton from a script also written by him. It is auto, I mean, semi slash fully autobiographical in nature. It's about his time joining the military um, after he sort of was homeless in, in New York City for a period of time after sort of being rejected by his mother um, in the film played by um, she's getting an Oscar buzz and I'm forgetting her name right now, but it's going to come to me. Gabrielle Union. Yes. And, you know, I I just ultimately found the film very refreshing because obviously I I think if you if you vaguely describe the plot of this film about a gay black man joining the military to people and you ask them what you think the movie's going to be like, they're going to describe to you, I think, something that's like, I'm not going to say can't be done well, but going is going to be something that doesn't sound particularly interesting. And instead, what you get is a very interesting story about a man um, who has a complicated relationship with the military, who was mistreated and did receive a lot of homophobia while in the military, but also took away a lot of really valuable things and clearly um, thinks of it as an experience that defined the rest of his life in a positive way in, in some in some instances. And so I just thought the film was really beautiful, Scott. I know you haven't seen it. I really, I really I want, want you to see this film um, when you get the chance. I would say... It's one of those that could even benefit more on a rewatch by me. And it is also a, a film that uh, not is not that is not unique in this case, but has has uh, Raul Castillo in the cast who managed to steal a couple scenes um, as well. So we'll be talking about another movie later. I'm sure that Raul Castillo seal, seals a scene or two in as well. So I drew a little bit on my number 20 just because I know it's one Scott hasn't seen. But my number 19, a Sundance film called Fire of Love. It's a documentary. It's been an awards conversations, I think. Um, you know, I've talked a little bit about it, definitely on the Sundance episode. I talked about this, this movie, cause it was one of my top five out of Sundance last year, but it's about a documentary about volcanologists who lost their life, uh, studying volcanoes. So I forget when exactly that happened, like when they, when they died, but you know, it was you know, 20, you know, 10, I think it was like 15, 20 years ago when it, when it happened. Um, but just a gorgeous film, like they recorded just some insane footage. Um, over their careers and the fact that it has been brought together and restored um, in some ways by uh, by the director of this film, which is Sarah Dosa, is just remarkable. Um, you know, not everything in the film works. I think the narration is something I've pointed out in the past. I can't remember if that was on air or off air when I pointed that out. But the narration by Miranda July is probably like the weakest point of the film for me. But everything else about this film, these people's lives, what they did, the images that they they captured, both photographs and also video is just I mean, incredible stuff. Um, kind of bummed. I mean, I have a great setup here in my apartment to watch films, which is what we did for Sundance, of course, because almost all their movies that we would watch are virtual. But it would have been really cool to see this film on, you know, a huge screen. Um, I think it maybe got a limited release, but I just never had the chance to go see it in theaters. Number 18, uh, Crimes of the Future. You know, it's uh, it, my first, I believe. No, not first. Geez, no, definitely not my first David Cronenberg movie. Um, I've seen some of his more mainstream fare, but this is a uh, sort of the first sort of 
you know, I say less mainstream type stuff with this more body horror type stuff, I, I, but it ended up not being as body horror as I expected it to be. I found it very approachable, um, even from someone who's not super into that sort of subgenre of horror and had a really interesting, you know, almost like crime crime film story to it. And overall, just one I really enjoyed, you know, Viggo Mortensen is someone who I think I kind of just always want to see more of. Just like you, I wish he did more things still. I know he's getting up there in age, relatively speaking, but uh, between him and Leia Sadu in this cast and uh, Kristen Stewart, really great cast, really great performances and has some really interesting stuff on its mind. I'm not sure it's fully fleshed out completely to the extent that would have pushed it up higher on my list, but really enjoyed this film and recommend it. Another Sundance documentary at number 17, Navalny. Scott, I think we were talking about this on air last week about or mm -hmm. the week before. It has just one of the most remarkable scenes of the year in it. Um, yes. If you don't know the full, I, I feel like I'm literally just repeating what we said last week, but Daniel Rohr, um, it, who's the director of this film, manages to capture live um, while it's happening. One of just the most remarkable things I've ever seen, you know, on, in a movie, in a chilling, documentary. Chilling yeah. things. Chilling, crazy stuff. If you don't know, because it is this true story about about the sort of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, the opposition party, uh, the leader of the opposition party against uh, Vladimir Putin during a very tumultuous time, you know, a few years ago in, in Russia. I mean, not like it's still tumultuous in Russia now, but um, Navalny's in, in prison and is a bit limited in what he's able to do. But before that happened, you know, there was this footage that was able to be captured and strung together to create this to create this uh, documentary feature. And yeah, just one of the craziest things that happened in cinema in 2022, in my opinion. Um, number 16, The Northman, a, a film that I think fair to say we had high expectations for. I, I not a not the biggest fan of Robert Eggers' previous movie, The Lighthouse, which I really thought was like too artsy um, for kind of art for the sake of artsy for the sake of being artsy kind of vibe. But Alexander Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, Ethan Hawke, Annie Taylor-Joy, Clay Spang, a, a really strong cast a really committed production design, like a, a really great trailer for this film sort of completely sold me. And the fact that Robert Eggers, you know, got his blank check almost to make this film and went and made it like he went and made like an 80 to $100 million movie. We said this so many times this year, I feel like, and you know, I have, it hasn't been on my mind very much since watching the film, which I think is a bit of a disappointment. And I think there's a couple different reasons why that might be, but to only look at the positive here, I think Alexander Skarsgård is, really great in the film and just the, the the full of it i do think that robert eggers was able to squeeze a lot of value a lot of bang for the buck out of this film there's some there's some long takes and one shots that are just incredible um sort of the climactic scenes at the end of the movie are incredibly staged i think overall just a really um a really admirable film um if not one that's stuck with me since then Number 15, a film that I'm just kind of surprised it's not higher on my list, Scott. I mean, it is well documented on this podcast that I am a huge Mad Max Fury Road fan, one of my favorite movies of all time. And so George Miller's sort of follow up to that, um, not not Furiosa, which is you know still yet to come out, of course, but um, his next narrative feature after Mad Max Fury Road, 3,000 Years of Longing, a, a passion project of his that he's wanted to make for, seems like decades, but the technology didn't really exist to make it is one that I just sort of loved more than everyone else. I think <laughs> when the film came out this year, Idris Elba, Tilda Swinton really just felt like they own the screen and the, I mean, the visuals in this, the sort of historical angle and the magical properties 
of a lot of what's going on. Just a gorgeous film. Saw this like in the middle of an afternoon on a Friday um, in Dolby at my AMC theater uh, near my apartment in New York. And there's like five or six other people in the theater, which is, I think, the total number of people who saw this movie in a theater. Scott, I'm not 100 percent sure, um, but I'm really glad that I got to see it. Really happy that George Miller was able to make this movie. And I felt like this is an example, like talking about the Northman, who I, what I haven't thought about a lot since I saw it. I feel like this is the sort of flip side where it's a movie that had a pretty big budget, probably a bigger budget than it, than it maybe deserved to have, but is a movie that I've thought about a lot since then. And, you know, I, I know that's not, not the universal experience of people seeing, seeing this film. And I understand some of the criticisms of it, how some of the third act doesn't, doesn't fully come together for some people. But for me, I still found a lot of merit in it. Number 14, Triangle of Sadness, uh, a film in three acts, I think it's safe to say. And a film, again, that I think I just really appreciate. I, I so, so much of this film is marketed as, you know, pe like rich people on a boat. Um, but that's like a third of the movie. And I think that, you know, you can, your mileage is going to vary, but whether or not you think that's the, you know, the best or the worst part of the film. Um, but I just really loved all three acts of this movie. I thought that they all offered something different and interesting to say about power dynamics. And maybe the middle chapter on the boat is the least interesting in terms of strictly power dynamics. But I also thought it still brought a lot of humor to the table that isn't going to work for everyone, but did ultimately work pretty well for me. And, you know, I have been I've been very negative on Harris Dickinson. I think it's fair to say in literally everything else that the guy's done. But I think he's genuinely really good in this movie. Um, Charlby Dean also very good in this movie. So, so horrible and sad that she passed away this year, you know, after the film debuted at Cannes, but before it released wide. And it's just a real tragedy. I mean, it happens. It's happened a lot recently. It feels like I don't know if it's more than usual at this point, because it just seems to always be happening. But when someone so young like her passes away, it is even even more of a tragedy, I think, especially someone who was showing a lot of promise and potentially on the precipice of, of breaking out as a you know really meaningful star in in Hollywood. But I really like the film Power Dynamics um, explored in multiple different ways and saying that it isn't necessarily always about the kind of person you are. Uh, power Dynamics might just be universal. When you have the power, you become you become someone else. Number 13, Scott, um, RRR. I mean, crazy that it's not higher maybe, but maybe speaks to the quality of the year. When you and Paul had seen i think you both had seen this movie before i before i had mm -hmm. and, you and i said oh like it's an alamo middle of the week it like wasn't super convenient for me to go see this movie and the two of you are just like scott just you have you have to go like you have to make it work um i went i made it work and i reveled in in the grandeur that is ss rajamuli's rrr um just what a, what a film i mean a complete a complete odyssey a film of comedy, musical, action, adventure, um, you know, broing out in romance, uh, bromance, yeah, 100%. Yeah. N.T. around Jr. and Ram Sharan uh, playing the two leads of Beam and um, Raju. The fact that this movie obviously is not historically accurate, but is loosely inspired by, you know, real people is just wild. And the stuff they do with animals, um, Scott, all you had to say about this movie is that the one of the first cards that you see pop up on screen is that no animals were harmed during the making of this movie. And you know, the film is going to be a banger. I think. When and, you but see then they like list, that. 
They list no yeah. lions, tigers, zebras, wildebeest. Like they list like fifteen ty- different types of animals. It's like, oh man, what are we about to see? Yeah, yeah. So an absolute coronation, I think, um, for you know mainstream Indian cinema. I know it's it's not Bollywood, it's Tollywood, um, but I, I think kind of like Parasite was for South Korean filmmaking in the U.S. Um, and sort of public consciousness around it. I, I kind of think that that RR might be that for again I don't know how much how much delineation there's going to be between uh Telugu and 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 um you know so Tollywood and Bollywood but Indian cinema I'm I'm very hopeful I mean already at least in New York there's tons of other Indian films that show in in the large theaters that I I don't know how many people are going to see them but I'm kind of hoping that you know the fact that there just aren't as many wide releases of of Hollywood films happening for a variety of different reasons at the box office you know i'm hoping that you know next this coming year i i go try a few a few more of those types of movies um i think it's a real opportunity and and somehow i've spent a lot of time not talking about the film itself but if you have not seen ror go watch it like absolutely incredible has one of the best scenes of the year it's got like the scene right before the intermission of the film which is i think just fame infamous now among at least film twitter uh the not the natu natu song and and music like it's just a music video is basically what it is but like all the videos of people just like freaking out at the chinese theater the tcl theater in la you know it went viral again this past week but that happened earlier in the year like i remember videos of that happening earlier in the year too and the fact that that's happening in theaters you know that reminds you of stuff like seeing avengers endgame in a wild theater for the first time and and those are the those are the kind of experiences like you want a movie theater like that's what we want a movie theater for and our our was like the film that was able to bring that this year at, at that level i mean there's plenty of other movies that i'm so glad i got to see in the theater this year but our are certainly one of them number 12 scott your your internal response is going to be too low for me but all the beauty and the bloodshed uh one of the best documentaries of the year scott i know you're a particularly um moved by this picture but getting to see this as, as the centerpiece film at the new york film festival with nan golden and laura poitras in attendance to talk about it afterwards it's a, it's a really powerful film i'm not going to say it's unorthodox but it, it is very specific in how it chooses to tell its story and a lot of that is just images um and i think that the fact that nan golden is such a renowned um photographer and her art could be sort of used not necessarily as the full medium to tell the story, but as a as a sort of linchpin way to communicate the emotion and the impact of a lot of her a her life, but also be the uh, of these experiences she had. And the film that I guess I should actually describe what the film is about, um, but it is sort of chronicling the life of Nan Golden and also her experience with addiction and drug abuse, but also um, the Sackler family's role in that as um, pushing the opioid, essentially pushing doctors to prescribe opioids and really perpetuating the opioid epidemic and the sort of poison that became on society. You know, if there is one thing that I would point out that I think does sort of blunt, blunt the impact a little bit is I do think that the fact that it, it sort of sacrifices depth for breadth in, in Nan Golden's life, although understandable. And I think it does make it, um, something a little bit different than I was expecting going into the film. I do think that it sort of blunts a little bit of the impact for me, but it's still like just an incredibly powerful film. Um, you know, we're talking like, you know, my, in the minutia of, of critiques for it, but if you haven't seen this film, 
it is sort of a, it feels like a, a, an essential American, you know, 21st century documentary um, to really understand American society. Um, extreme, you know, a really important component of American society and even more so than 21st century, just like things that have happened in the last 10 years in, in American society, which there aren't that many documentaries that are so, you know, temporally relevant, I think, um, in such a powerful way. This is one of them. And Scott, my number 11, wrapping things up, one of the uh, films that I was alluding to earlier on saying it was a great year for blockbusters. It is Matt Reeves as the Batman. Robert Pattinson donning uh, the cape and the mask. And we got this film like, I know it wasn't right at the beginning of the year, but felt like the beginning of the year because we were still wrapping up award season when this film came out. It was three hours. Uh, it, it's a trend in, in blockbuster movies um, at the theaters, but I really loved you know, pretty much every minute of this film. Obviously, Robert Pattinson being the most notable person in the film because he was playing Bruce Wayne. But the fact that Zoe Kravitz, Jeffrey Wright, you know, Colin Farrell, Paul Dano, okay. John Turturro. I mean, th this this cast is unreal and it's stacked. And the fact that I got out of this film, you know, it being three hours long and I was perfectly happy to go see it again. And, you know, just recently, actually, Scott, I was thinking about like, man, I'd actually, I actually kind of want to rewatch this. Um, and so, you know, I, I did not rewatch it before recording this episode. So maybe it suffered a little bit from having not seen it since it was in theaters, but what a pleasure of a film. And I'm just glad that we've got something of the ilk of a Nolan Batman movie. It's obviously different and, and completely unique. It's going for a completely different, different vibe. It, it is much more, you know, obviously we talked about this when it came out, but Fincherian, it's very, you know, hard boiled, more noirish detective story. It is, of course, an ultimately an adventure film, but it feels much more closer to Batman as a detective than any other Batman film we've probably ever gotten. And the, but the fact that we were able to get something of the quality of the Nolan movies that, you know, a higher quality than any of the movies that featured Batman in the DCEU, I was just so grateful for. So, yeah, my 20 through 11. All right, Scott, great choices, um, you know, with the exception of Triangle of Sadness, which I haven't seen or which I didn't vibe with really yeah. and the uh, inspection which i haven't seen um i really like all of the films that you mentioned there some of which may i may talk about tonight some of which i think you know we're just outside sort of my 11 through yeah. 20 range so um yeah great picks um and I, I can't fault you really on any of them certainly a lot of people did enjoy triangle of sadness but scott i will move on now to my 20 through 11 and i'm going to start with number 20 and i'm just going to say three words which are we don't stop because those are the words spoken by Jake Gyllenhaal in his truly unhinged performance in Ambulance, which was one of the most fun times I had at the movie this year, this latest uh, film from Michael Bay, um, really getting back to his roots of just sort of these chaotic nonstop action thrill rides, um, you know, about basically the, the entire most of the entirety of this movie, as people have said, is it's a six-star chase from GTA. It's this ambulance on the run and just crazy stuff going on. Surgery going on in the back of the ambulance. You have, yeah. uh, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal and Yaya Abdul-Mateen singing along to Christopher Cross's sailing at a very sort of intense moment in the film. It really is. It's a return to form for Michael Bay, and it's a real throwback to the sort of 90s action movies, which are some of my action favorite action movies, which were over the top and knew it. And everyone just kind of leaned in and just had fun with it. So I really enjoyed Ambulance. My, my coworkers really did not like this movie. And I was I could not understand why. Cancel them. They, yeah, they didn't even finish it. Apparently they just turned it off. It's 
fine. Whatever. Cancel that. Uh, Scott, number 19, Armageddon Time. This is James Gray's autobiographical film about sort of his um, youth and growing up in New York City, his Jewish family, and their sort of their assimilation into white liberal uh, society of the time um, and some of the complications that came with that and, and, you know, ultimately tragedies that came with that, specifically his relationship with uh, this young black uh, boy who went to he went to school with and sort of the path that that goes down um just a really fascinating experiment in sort of a a filmmaker exercising his own demons on the screen and you know telling the story of something that has clearly traumatized him for a long time and trying to process it through making a film like you know the the thing that he knows how to do um and yeah, you know, I, I don't know if there's like a, a standout performance from the cast, but everyone's really good. You know, Jeremy Strong, Anne Hathaway, Anthony Hopkins, and Banks Rapetta, who plays the young version of James Gray. Um, yeah, re really great movie. And I, I think people didn't appreciate this one as much as they should have, probably, uh, for what it was trying to do. Number 18, After Yang, Koganada's um, sort of soft sci-fi um, drama. Um, about this android named Yang, who is sort of a uh, second sibling to the Chinese child that Colin Farrell and Jodie Turner-Smith have adopted, um, and the fact that he starts to um, power down, become ineffective, basically, and it's just sort of about the family's um, attempts to reckon with that and what that means and you know, what Yang means for all of sort of human existence. And it's a very existential movie at times, but, you know, it has that sort of quiet elegance about it that is such a staple of Koganada's films, just two films in. Um, and there's just some really beautiful, um, serene moments in the film. The cat, the entire cast is great. Um, it's, it's a really moving experience at only 93 minutes or something, and it's right there on Showtime. Don't miss this one. It's, it's my favorite Colin Farrell performance of the year. Um, you know, with him being in three very good films. Um, I, I think this is probably his strongest work. Um, Scott, next up, I have Avatar, The Way of Water, uh, James Cameron's spectacular follow-up to his, you know, 2009 uh, blockbuster. Long awaited for this film, and it was worth the wait, Scott. He absolutely delivered. I think this film is better than the first movie. Um, I think it has a more focused story. It has a more emotionally compelling story. It focuses on Jake Sully and his family. Um, which I think is a good choice and just opens up the world of Pandora, you know, introducing us to the Metcaina reef dwelling people. You know, we get the Talcoon who are these, you know, spectacular whale like creatures. Um, it's just, you know, a, a fa you know, incredible cinematic experience being immersed in this world with these characters, you know, and seeing James Cameron just cooking as only James Cameron can do, especially that third act, you know, just a spectacular um, action climax. And, you know, I'm not going to say it's like the most emotionally compelling characters that you'll ever find in, in films, but he definitely improved in that department to a point where, you know, I just, I can't really understand the people who complain so much about the, the script and the characters in these movies. Like it just, just, just let the experience wash over you. It really is all about the experience for me. And um, I had a great time, even at over three hours long. I felt like it it went by really quickly and is one that you have to see in the theaters. Like you just, you absolutely have to. And it's probably going to be there for a little bit longer, given how uh, successful it's financially. So 
Um, That's an understatement. Yeah. A little bit longer. This thing's going to play to like June, probably. <laughs> also, th yeah. those people, sorry, aside, those people are like the same people who don't complain about Marvel movie scripts, right? I'm just assuming that those are the right, people yeah. that don't complain mm -hmm. about Marvel movie scripts. They are. Okay. They are. Yeah. They are. Logging off now. Um, worth worth pointing out for sure. Uh, Scott, number 16, one of the most underrated movies of the year. One of the movies that I'm really trying to champion from this year is Emily the Criminal. This is the first time feature from John Patton Ford. Um, not only is this just a really sort of suspenseful crime thriller about this um, woman who, to try and pay off her student loans, um, decides to sort of get him embroiled in, in, in this criminal underworld that um, first is doing this sort of... Um, dummy buying where they go buy stuff charge it to credit cards that are fraudulent and then um you know deliver to a third party um and get paid for it but later it's just in the process of making fraudulent credit cards and sort of spearheading this whole business um really you know like i said susp some suspenseful set pieces in this movie some of the most suspenseful scenes um of the year but it's also a, just a really interesting character piece um, about this character, Emily, played by Aubrey Plaza in a brilliant performance, in my opinion, and also this sort of other uh, person that she meets, um, Yusef, played by Theo Rossi, through this criminal business, and the bond that the two of them form as people who have sort of are at their, their you know, last resort in terms of how they can really make a, a living for themselves in this place that's supposed to be, you know, providing the American dream for people. And it really is just one of the best, better movies that I've seen about, you know, the sort of cyclical nature of crime in a way and why people become, you know, recidivists and repeat offenders and everything in the, the criminal justice system because they have no other place to turn. And because their past history and criminal record gets unfairly and arbitrarily held against them um it, and you know preventing them from advancing and really giving them only one uh, place to turn so it it's you know a thriller but it has something on its mind too i really hope people will watch this movie it's on netflix now um and i think it's a really engaging film but two of the most interesting characters and performances of the year um and interesting ending yeah for sure 15, Scott, uh, you mentioned it. Yeah, it's RRR, the uh, the face-melting Tollywood epic. Um, yeah, you know, I echo everything you say, and I would just say, you know, as sort of a counterpoint to what I'm saying with Amsterdam, this film feels like it was made with so much joy and care and passion, and that's why it really, you know, I really, you know, I'm so happy to see that it's getting awards recognition, that people are really loving it, and that it has a real chance to, win the best international feature oscar if not be nominated for best picture like it is trending in that direction right now um and i just couldn't be happier because i think this film is it's why we love movies it really is anyway scott moving on number 14 a movie that i think was kind of forgotten this year and that's kimmy uh the steven soderbergh straight to hbo max sort of paranoid de palma-esque thriller about this agoraphobic computer whiz played by zoe kravitz who um is searching the audio streams of this sort of Alexa-like, um, you know, system called Kimmy and discovers something sinister and gets involved in sort of a conspiracy. Um, Steven Soderbergh just, you know, cooking as Steven Soderbergh can do um, with these sort of straight-to-streaming features. He keeps delivering with these movies. You know, we had High Flying Bird, which is great. We had No Sudden Move last year, which was really great. Like, the guy just he just makes great films um, and he's making them at a frenetic pace at this point. And I, I love to see it. Um, 
he's obviously we're going to see another one of his films coming out here and just just next month with magic mike's last dance but um yeah kimmy was kimmy is great it's a super fun movie it really is an example of an auteur just doing what he wants moving the camera all over the place fun needle drops it's it's a really fun movie like just just check it out um and a really great covid movie too that isn't going to like depress you about covid it's just sort of very realistic about it 13 scott um speaking of movies that got unfairly buried on streaming services apollo 10 and a half a space age childhood that's richard linklater's latest film on netflix um yeah just this sort of really lovely nostalgia trip you know these are the sort of movies these vibes heavy nostalgia heavy movies that i think linklater makes that are that are among linklater's best um and this is one of his most personal films it's just sort of about his childhood and his family life growing up in the late 60s and you know the central event of the film is the moon landing and the way he chooses to depict that i think is really interesting um but also you know the whole film is in rotoscope animation which he's experimented with before leads to some beautiful sequences there's one scene at, at astro world which is just so detailed and um you know really sort of um gorgeous to look at it's great uh, if you love Linklater's films you gotta check this one out because i think it's a really important film to understanding him as a filmmaker 12 cha-cha real smooth uh you sort of alluded to this earlier scott this is cooper rife's film um i really just uh you know connected with this film as i did with his first film as well but um yeah we watched this at sundance i've watched it a couple more times over the course of the year Maybe he's the next Richard Linklater, Scott. It does feel like he's one of the next sort of big voices in American indie movies. Um, and he is so young. And the earnestness with which he, you know, depicts this time in a person's life, which was not that long ago for us as well, Scott. So I think that's why the film resonates with us, especially. Um, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it's something that people will will likely find, you know, cringeworthy and, you know, it's not going to connect with everyone because he is so hard on his sleeve. But I think it's refreshing. I think it's nice to see somebody who is this young is making a film and it's a little bit messy, understandably. It's not, you know, it's not boogie nights, right? You can't just churn out a perfect film the first time that you make one. Um, so I love it, warts and all. And it has a great ensemble cast. And, and Cooper Rife really gives everyone their moment for Dakota Johnson, Vanessa Burghardt, um, Raul Castillo, who you mentioned earlier, Leslie Mann, Brad Garrett, Odiah Rush, wonderful cast. Um, and finally, Scott, last minute entry. Uh, I literally saw this film last night, but my number 11 movie, I could not leave it out. It's Broker from the Japanese director Hirokazu Koreeda. Um, one of the most emotional movies of the year, Scott. It's, it's a you know, really sort of fascinating story about these people who are brokers for unwanted children, who um, basically mothers who can't take care of their children, don't want to take care of their children, leave their babies in this box, and they end up um, making their way to this sort of middlemen who try to sell the babies to families who want the baby babies but don't want to go through the adoption process and you know the the lengthy convoluted nature of that but it turns into well, well to be this... clear they they steal they steal the babies yes yes yeah, yeah yes it, it's not like um, the box is, is there for them it's they they take them from the box but yes yeah, yeah yeah yes yes sorry if that wasn't clear um regardless it's a it's this very it turns into this very sort of touching found family um yeah. story between these two guys who are you know part of this enterprise a woman who leaves her baby but then regrets it um and 
a young boy as well who's in an orphanage. Um, they they form this found family, and, and you know there's some things going around the on around the main plot which maybe are a tad half baked, but the the central dynamic is just so compelling in all three performances. Song Kang Ho, um, you know, is is always great, and then um, Lee. Uh, shoot, I I can't I forgot how to say her name, but um, IU. Yeah, the, she's the K-pop star IU. She plays the the yeah. wife, or not the wife, the mother in this film. The mother. And um, she just, I thought, I found her really emotionally compelling, and I'm surprised more people aren't talking about this performance, maybe. But um, watching them interact and the, the things that they open up and unlock about each other over the course of the movie, it was just really moving. I found myself tearing up a couple times in this movie. Corrieta has such a light touch with how he directs this movie. Um, I, I just found it beautiful. And like I said, I couldn't um, leave it out ultimately. And it almost ended up making my top 10. So I'm really glad I fit it in there before the end. But my 20 through 11, Scott. That was my 21. It pains me to not include it on the list. Yeah. But I really wanted to talk about the inspection. Um, yeah, it, ju it, it just like literally just missed out. Um, reminded me a ton of watching wheel of fortune and fantasy last year as the first hamaguchi film i had seen and it is the first creative film that i had seen it it reminded me of a similar experience obviously this film is like a full narrative feature closer to something like drive my car than wheel of fortune and fantasy but um just as a comparable like first first film with the director sort of experience from last year and both japanese directors but yeah Song Kang like hard to pick a winner of those central three characters to be honest like mm -hmm. Song Kang Ho is like he's the one getting the most talked about just because I think he's probably also the most famous of the three people in film um, I guess IU may be more famous than him just culturally but yeah Gang Dong Wan as well just very powerful stuff R really does detract I, I do feel like the peripheral stuff detracts more for me I, I almost just sort of like don't understand why it was there at all, but uh, small potatoes at the end of the day, probably. Lee Ji Un, that's her her full name. But uh, we've said enough, Scott. It's time to get into the meat of the order. Your ten, your number ten movie. Let's get into these top tens. All right, Scott. I went back and forth about whether this is going to be number ten or number eleven. I settled on number ten. It is Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Not that we doubted Steven Spielberg because West Side Story was a great film last year. Just one of those things where I mentioned, I talked about this a lot on the podcast, certainly talked about it off the podcast as well. Going into seeing The Fablemans, I was not 100% sure that I wanted The Fablemans, is I think fair to say. I was vocally skeptical about whether we needed a 151 minute, another like two and a half hour film about a director's childhood. And I also think the trailer for this film does not does not tell you like really what this film is trying to do. It is very different than the end product, I think. And the end product is like really great. <laughs> it's just really great filmmaking. I mean, I mean, Steven Spielberg, have you heard of him? I think is it's fair to say because it really feels like he pulls out all the stops and just knows how to make something that is extremely watchable. And I talked about Lightyear being barely watchable. Granted, it's an it's a different medium. It's animated versus live action. But the Fableman starts and, you know, maybe it takes a few minutes to, to really get locked into it because it does cover a lot of time at the beginning. You know, when Spielberg is super young before you really start to get 
Gabriel LaBelle's performance, which starts when he's a little bit older and then carries through the rest, the rest of the film. But it, it's just so watchable. It's so smooth. Time just flies when you're watching this film. And the performance is really strong. Of course, for a while, Michelle Williams was getting a lot of buzz as a potential nominee. She may still snag uh, supporting. Oh, no, sorry. She's in lead actress, isn't she? Um, yes. I don't know how that happened. Stupidly. Yeah. Maybe she snags a lead actress nomination still. Seems like she's going to miss completely. Paul Dano. It, maybe there's some buzz around him getting a supporting actor nomination this year. And what I think it's fair to say is a weak category. So he could definitely sneak in because he is a, he gives a very good performance and has sort of like one of like the emotionally like the emotional high scenes of the film. You know, the, one of the last scenes in the movie he has the last no next to the last scene in the movie that, mm -hmm. that he's in is is certainly a very cathartic. Last, yeah. No, certainly not the last. How could I forget the last? A very cathartic scene. But the performance for me that people have not talked about, I don't understand why, is Gabriel LaBelle. He's so good in this film. You know, obviously, he is probably some idealized version of what Spielberg was as a kid. I think all the all the lazy complaints about like, oh, like you just made a movie that's like so narcissistic and just like, look how good of a filmmaker I am. Uh, yeah, Scott's rolling his eyes for all for all of our listeners, um, me spiritually with him, but. You know, you can say that if you want to, but I just find that this film and Gabriel LaBelle, like it, there's just some special chemistry um, at work here between Spielberg and LaBelle. I think he's able to really capture something that makes makes this character of I mean, I'm forgetting the name of the character in the movie, I guess, to be Sammy, Sammy. Um, makes Sammy, I think, very believable as this teenager who has this great passion, but maybe doesn't always know what to do with it to the point where, you know, there's a point in the film where he gives up making, making movies for a very emotional reason. And I think the film just really wrestles so well with this notion of like what to do with your talents, what to do with your passions. What's, what is like the, what is like, how, how do you deal with, with, with that? Not always sort of um, creating, making life easy for you. Uh, sometimes your passions can make your life really difficult and what you do with that. And I think that's one of the, just the, there's just so few movies. I feel like that really, really confront that. Like, yeah, there's like your career can be difficult or whatever. Like there's movies like that all the time, but this film isn't about like this kid's career. I mean, ultimately of course it becomes his career, but this film is just about like, like doing what this kid loves and it making it difficult on his, like on his family and his life. And I think that that's just a really wonderful story to be told. And overall, I'm glad it was told. You know, clearly this is a very emotional film for Spielberg. I think there are flaws to the movie for me personally, but it's just a joy to watch. So, some of the scenes where he's like making film, um, like the one that he's shooting when he's younger with his friends out in like the desert, like the cow, like the cowboy film and also like the military, like, like the, the war film. Like, it's just so fun to watch that happen. And then more films, I guess, should, Scott, we should bust out the 16 millimeter millimeter editor or whatever, eight millimeter editor. Oh, yeah. And cut that stuff up and show it. Cause like, I don't know. I know I'm sure like a lot of people find that boring, but I just thought that was so cool to see that actually happening. Does him actually doing that? Yeah. I just, I, I really, really, really enjoyed this film. Number 10, the Fablemans. And the horizon was in the middle Scott for almost the entire movie. So worth pointing out. Uh, of course I am. I'm not uh, serious yeah. about that, but yeah, Scott, I moving on to my number 10 film of the year, Jordan Peele's Nope. Um, one of those blockbusters that we were talking about early in the 
the episode that really delivered this year and is really sort of an all-timer. You know, I'm a fan um, of both of Jordan Peele's other films, Get Out and Us. Um, I think they're both great. Uh, but this is the one which for me is kind of the classic. I know Get Out is already, you know, it made the sight and sound top 100. So obviously it's achieved iconic status already. But uh, this is my favorite one of Peele's films and the one that I um, could see myself revisiting for years to come. Um, it's a sort of Spielbergian, I mean, to, to go off what you're talking about, sci-fi epic in a way, which is, uh, you know, different from, from, from Peele's last two films, which were straight up horror films. Um, it has a more epic scope to it. Um, and the creature design of this jean jacket, as it is known, uh, this giant spaceship that just eats people, um, is, um, it, it's, it's fascinating. It's unique. It's not something that, uh, we feel like we've seen before. Um, and, you know, the final uh, third act, the third act of the movie, which is just this, this sort of um, confrontation, this long confrontation with um, Jean Jacket um, is, you know, enthralling. It's it's definitely one of the scenes of the year. Um, and, you know, Peel is, is really just pulling out all of his tricks from the cinematography, the score, you know, the technical aspects are so spectacular. Um, but also, you know, it's not a Peel movie if there's not a lot of thematic weight to what is going on. And there's a lot going on in this movie about sort of the nature of spectacle, right? And the things that we stare at, for lack of a better phrase, quite literally, you know, the, the gimmick of, of Jean Jacket is that if you look up at, look up at it, you get sucked in. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a metaphor right there, right away. But, you know, working in Stephen Yun's character... Um, who's this, you know, former child actor that experienced this traumatic um, experience on the show that he was on as a child, where a chimpanzee went crazy and mauled people and then was, was you know, killed himself. Um, and the way that that has traumatized him into sort of creating his own spectacle and turning, uh, you know, emphasis towards the audience, right? Blaming the audience in a way. Um, but then, you know, there's racial dynamics as well. Again, it is a Peel film. And you have the fact that he is Korean. And you have the fact that, um, you know, our main two characters, o OJ and M, played by Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer, are Black and their ancestor, you know, allegedly they are an ancestor of the, the very first person to appear on a film, which was this Black man riding um, a horse. Um, and yet, in spite of that, it seems like they have to just work a lot harder to achieve the, you know, recognition, appreciation and success that they want to um, with their horse training business for, you know, movies and TV. Um, so there's so much going on beneath the surface, as in every Peel film, um, the idea that they have to go so far to get the one perfect shot, right, of Jean Jacket, because... You know, if not, they know that they're going to be discounted, erased, so to speak, is the word, which I think gets gets dropped in the movie. Um, it is is another layer to the commentary that's going on. Um, it's just so refreshing to see a film that is such a you know, thrilling, expansive, epic, um, sci-fi adventure that is also has so much to say. Right? It can be both of those things, and it can still be eaten up by people, and and you know do very well at the box office and have sold out screenings. And, um, you know, Jordan Peele is going to be able to continue making whatever he wants. 
Um, and that is exciting because it feels like he's only getting better with, with what he's doing. Um, and, you know, Nope was just uh, one of the, you know, for, for pretty much anyone, I think one of the most unforgettable theater experiences of the year and um, just, just a really special blockbuster from Jordan Peele. Another movie that I feel like uh, not necessarily the way it was advertised, but because of Jordan Peele's history becomes, uh, you know, it, you go in thinking that it might be a little bit different than what it ends up actually mm-hmm. doing. All right. You're number nine, Scott. Number nine. You've talked about it already. You know, Scott, because not to spoil your list a little bit, but like you do have two movies grouped together. And I really did I think do. about pairing pairing this with the Fablemans um, because it is the other you know, auteur, well, I mean, Steven Spielberg and auteur. Bardo. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Armageddon time. James Gray, you've mentioned the film already. Uh, it is the other, you know, really phenomenal auteur childhood story film of the year. You talked about how, I, I mean, I think, I think both this and the Fablemans both have quite a bit on their minds about childhood and the particular experiences they had as a child. There's obviously... I don't want to say shame with the Fablemans, but I, I think that that Steven Spielberg feels a lot of that. There's a lot of distance with, between like what he decided to do with his childhood and how that affected his family and his parents, maybe even his parents' marriage, things like that. Um, James Gray here with Armageddon Time, you already started to talk about it some, but what he did with the film and how he sort of really, I think, tried to use it as a way to you know, exercise some of the demons of his childhood and of his experience growing up in, in New York city as not rich, but privileged, um, you know, if coming from a privileged white family, I think is, I just found it to be a really powerful experience. You know, I saw this at the New York film festival. I was sitting next to a couple people who I really feel like did not connect with the film at the level of genuine sort of self-reflection and self-questioning that the film, I think, really requires or uh, that it certainly operates at the level it operates on. And I also felt this way about some other conversations I had with people at work about this movie. But I I just really feel like a lot of people didn't like didn't really either understand what James Gray is really trying to do with the film or really didn't, I mean, I guess at a very basic level, didn't think it was necessary. Whether the film is necessary or not is just like not even a conversation that it really crosses my mind or that I think is necessary. Is like, is even like worth talking about? Like, did this guy need to make a film about his childhood and his white privilege? Like, no, but isn't it interesting that he did in the way that he did it um, is kind of where I landed because I just find the sort of like the, the, the guilt and self-doubt and questioning of society, um, like it's not it's not refreshing. It's not new, but I think for a filmmaker like James Gray, who is an incredibly, I, I you know introspective but like broad filmmaker, like he like he makes films that on paper have like seem like they would have this really massively broad appeal, but then of course like do, does something with them that makes them like so <laughs> indie in, in a way. Um, like you you know you take Brad Pitt, you put him in like a sci-fi adventure film, but then you make the film like super introspective and you know, question whether, you know, like, are you even watching an adventure movie if Brad Pitt's just monologuing to himself the whole time in like diary form? I don't even know anymore. But then you have like the moon, the moon rover sequence where he's got like Mad Max on the moon. Um, so it's just like kind of wild, wild, 
he's like kind of a wild filmmaker in that respect. I think somebody who's like really able to track things and across across genres, even within the same film really well. And this one, like he's just like so clearly obsessed with the privilege, the privilege that he had growing up and his ability to become, you know, the famous successful filmmaker that he is. And I, I think that the performances are all great. You highlighted some of them when you were talking about the film. Um, Banks Rapetta plays Paul Graff, who is Jane, like uh, the James Gray standing kid. Um, I think in, they're like in middle school, maybe something like that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think the standout performances are his parents. I think Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong are tremendous in the film. Um, you know, I think it's it's pretty widely noted if you're plugged in at all to Jeremy Strong and spe specifically Succession and his method acting. And I think that's pretty it's pretty been well chronicled the last year and a half or so since the New Yorker profile that they did around Succession season three of him. But I think he's fully he's fully committed to this role and in a way that you can totally see how it, it really doesn't rub people. I mean, I'm sure it does rub people, some people the wrong way, but how very off putting it might be if he's like in character the entire time, because the guy is like, just like fully in on, on his performance. And I think Anne Hathaway, similarly, some, someone who I just feel like has been like totally anonymous in most of the movies, she like anonymous to like bad. in a lot of the movies she's done recently that I've seen, it was like, this was refreshing to see her. I feel like actually step back into what I'll say is like a, a serious movie and a serious performance and does a serious job with it. I think she's really quite good. And and her relationship, uh, her name's Esther, you know, her relationship with Irving, which is Jeremy Strong's character and also her family. Like, like this whole family dynamic is such a critical part of everything that's going on. Um, I just found the movie to be just like really open hearted. Um, this, the same way, uh, in a lot of ways, the same way The Fablemans was. Like, I think there's there's obviously a read of all these movies that is like, you know, a bit cynical and thinks that it's like a little cheesy or campy because it is about these filmmakers telling their childhood stories in ways that I'm sure are more, you know, and, and for for you know for The Fablemans, something that's more self gratifying probably for Spielberg in some ways, maybe not so in others. But you know, James Gray, I think there's very few. I'm, I just feel like it, it's so critical of who he was as a kid and what he was able to get away with. I think that if you haven't seen the movie, I would hundred percent recommend it. It's one of those films that I sort of just sort of set through the credits of this film, waiting for the Q and a to start. And I just kind of was stunned. I think by what I had watched stunned by the sort of radical self honesty of the film. Uh, I think the Anthony Hopkins performance originally, maybe I thought that it would be buzzier just because he had one best actor a couple of years ago for the father it didn't really seem to resonate as strongly as I thought it might have because he does have a, he probably has the most emotionally affecting performance in the film because he is playing this aging grandfather of, you know, the James Gray stand in child. And he has a couple scenes where I think this is maybe where I question how much of this actually happened, or this is almost like an adult James Gray trying to tell his childhood self, like what he, like what he should have done. And, um, and he really is this character in the movie who tries to, I think, telegraph and highlight um, the sort of like ethically right way to live your life and to behave. And I think what the rest of the movie shows is that that's nice and all, but in practice, are you really going to push yourself to the to the limits of what's tolerable and behave and behave and act that way? And the end of the movie says that for this family, this you know, like this very like like middle class, albeit white privileged family 
um, you know, you're, you're not necessarily going to live like the, you know, morally ethical life, um, that, that you might want to, or hope for on paper. And what does that mean? What does that mean? I think is what the film leaves you with. And I think James, I think, I think the answer to that is that James Gray feels that that's not a good thing, that that's really bad, but he can't go back and change what happened now. Um, you know, the last part I think is, is a leap of my interpretation, but I don't think that any part of this movie he feels comfortable with, to be honest. I think he made the movie out of discomfort. I think there's a lot of discomfort in the film. And I think that that discomfort is really important. There's some weird stuff that I will say, like the one drawback, there's some weird stuff with Trump in this movie, just like very frankly. Um, I don't even know what to make of it. I don't know why it was like he bothered to include it. Seems weird. And I mean, I know the speeches that are given are, are meant are meant to be like, you know, write this up on a wall and, and think about it kind of thing. But like, did it need to be Trump? I don't know. It was weird. That part was weird. But I mean, probably actually what? I mean, maybe it was actually Fred Trump. No, I, no. To, uh, to be clear, I am sure that it acts like that is actually yeah. who came and talked at the at his school. I'm just saying, like, because of the realities of what that would mean today, like, I don't think that it's making an interesting point for it to be included. And I felt that it took away a little bit. Uh, but, you know, because of what has happened recently, I'm sure it is also part of the guilt that he feels about in, in a different way. Maybe. But, the you know, regret that he still has about this this period that if he yeah he waits too long to do anything about it and then when he does do something about it it's kind of he just gets up and walks out and it doesn't really feel like um but that's you know, what that's what felt weird about it though. but it, it kind of that was i mean you're probably right um but that's like the one thing for me like it did it, it kind of felt like what he was saying was that this was the small victory that they took like this was their small victory of and maybe it's like damning with yeah. faint praise kind of th kind of situation. But like this is this is like the them living the ethical life or whatever that Anthony Hopkins, his character, wants them to live. But like this is th this is what they've done to do that. And it's like and it's nothing. It's not very much. And, and it struck a weird tone for me because I don't think that it probably meant meant to be self-congratulatory. But it kind of it kind of still is tonally framed that way, which felt kind of weird. Yeah, I didn't interpret it that way at all. I, I took it as, you know, by the time he actually decided to do anything, number one, it was very hollow what he did. And number two, the damage it's was already done, right? His, his yeah. friend, you know, has been In taken away. Who yeah. who knows what happened yeah. um, to yeah. him? But um, it was, you know, it was his fault. And, um, yeah. you know, he, he did something, but he didn't do it at the right time. At least that's how I interpreted it. Well, he did um, barely anything, I think, as well. And, and, and when he actually yeah. did something, it was barely anything, yes. Um, but yeah, yeah, fascinating film, Scott. You know, maybe if you can divorce it from sort of the meta context that is going on, then, you know, it may not be as as satisfying of an experience. I don't know. But, like, I I simply couldn't separate the film from, you know, the the meta layer of this is James Gray, you know depicting his I, I don't know why you would watch the man. film that I don't know why you yeah. would watch the film that way I mean I know plenty of people probably did because a lot of people maybe not be familiar with James Gray who watched this sure. movie like this is a much I mean I say this is a broad, more broadly appealing film than some of his other ones but I mean probably not I mean no one's watched this movie probably but I don't know how you could engage to the full extent of the film without really trying to wrestle with the meta element of it I 100% I agree and uh, you know last thing to say we didn't do the clips 
or anything this year from our friends of the show like we did last year. But I do happen to know this is a friend of the show, Zach Ford. This is his number one movie of uh, of 2022. So wow. shout out to right. Zach. Let's um, go. Hopefully he's we'll have to get him on the pod. We, he's never been on an episode, I feel like. He has not. Yeah, we, we should do that. Uh, maybe for Barbie, because I know he and I are both heart, hyped for that. Barbenheimer. One. Um, God, what a lit episode that's going to be. Christ. It's going to be something. All right, Scott, moving on to my number nine. You uh you mentioned that I had two films grouped together. This is where that comes into play. It's traditional for me at this point that I have a tie somewhere in the list. I can't can't limit myself. But this year it felt like there were two films that obviously lended themselves mm-hmm. really well to a tie. And that's because they are a double feature of sort of sorts. And you know, it's the experience, these are the experiences that I really treasure from the movie year. The movies you you know nothing about coming in. All of a sudden, this movie just pops out and it's like, oh hey, I'll go see this. In this case, we're talking about um films from director Ty West. And you know, I had never seen anything from Ty West outside of a segment that he did for the anthology film VHS. So I had no reason to anticipate this film X that he was making. Um, but A24 put it out. It was getting good reviews. I figured I would go check it out. Had such a fun time with this movie. It's a th- sort of throwback slasher movie, um, you know, really harkening back to 70 slashers like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and it's about this um, adult film crew that goes to this sort of remote farm to uh, make their latest film and end up, end up bumping into the residents of the farm who are a very old couple named Howard and Pearl. And um, turns out they are harboring some secrets and um, things, you know, it's a slasher film. So you can, you can guess what direction the film ultimately goes in, Uh, but it takes its time to get there, um, which I think is one of the things I like. It's very suspenseful, Uh, but you have a great cast in this movie. Um, you know, Jenna Ortega, who's like a really up and coming scream queen. Obviously, now she's getting a lot of buzz for her performance in Wednesday. She's in the film. Kid Cuddy is really strong. Um, what's her name? The woman from Pitch Perfect, Brittany Snow, Brittany Snow. Um, is really great. But of course, the highlight of the film is Mia Goth playing a dual role in X as Maxine, um, who is, you know, adult film actress. And then Pearl uh, in old age, heavy old age makeup. She plays the older Pearl. And uh, it's it's a super fun, stylish slasher movie. I mean, he has such a great visual style. There's some shots in this movie that have really stayed with me. There's an amazing overhead shot of Mia Goth in the lake being um, hunted by this crocodile. Um, just a, a, one of the great shots of the year is this overhead shot of that, you know, her unknowing that this crocodile is catching up on her from behind but the kills are really satisfying it gets really sort of weird and icky in a way um but you know i think is is overall just like i said it just the the main factor for me is it's just a really fun movie to watch and so i watched x i go home i thought hey that was a lot of fun and then i'm looking around online it turns out there was a post-credit scene that i knew nothing about and that in this post-credit scene it was announced that another film is coming out, you know, this year from Ty West, and that we're now going to get the backstory of the old woman Pearl from this movie and a film called Pearl, and that once again Mia Goth is going to be playing um, the character. And Pearl came out in the fall 
Um, and it was something completely different from X, right? It's not a slasher movie. You could you could go so far as to say it's not even a horror movie, possibly. Um, it is more of this sort of psychological coming of age story um, of Pearl, again, as a teenager, um, as a young woman, and living with her mother, who is this really domineering German woman, and her father, who is a vegetable in a wheelchair, who, you know, cannot say anything or move or eat on his own. Um, and her wanting to get away from this sort of um, life of suffering and become a star, become a dancer in particular, is what she's interested in doing, become an actress. And um, her just sort of exploring um, that, that passion awakening in her, some of her sexual passion as well, which again is part of X, is part of what's going on in X as well. We see her sort of her sexual awakening happening in the film as well. Um, and then there are some kills as well, because what we're seeing is the birth of this person who would become, you know, a psychopath in a way um, by the time we get to X. But Mia Goth, especially in Pearl, is unreal. Um, you cannot take your eyes off of her in this movie. Um, she is fully committed in this performance. And in particular, there's a monologue at towards the very end of the film that is unforgettable, um, that where the camera just holds on her for about seven or eight minutes um, while she's sort of telling the backstory of her romance with Howard, right? Uh, because Howard is off in the military um, for the majority of this film. Um, and so she's sort of dealing with that as well. Um, and, you know, she just owns this movie. It, you know, in a just world, it would absolutely be talked about in an awards conversation. But because this is a genre adjacent film, um, she's not getting any attention. I think she did get recognized at the Gotham Awards, maybe, or the, well, I think it was just a critic circle, maybe. I don't know. But her name popped up a couple of times, but not in anything significant. Um, but that's a shame. And you know what, Scott? Turns out this is only... Uh, two films in a trilogy, right? We have the third film coming. We have Maxine, which is going to be more on the story of Mia Goth's younger character from X. And I am all in. Um, I think if if Ty West can land the plane here, this could be an instantly sort of iconic horror trilogy. Um, I, I just found what he was doing with these movies so interesting. And, and also, I didn't mention with Pearl that visually also the movie is great. It has this technicolor effect which makes it look like the wizard of oz basically um so it's really sort of unsettling in a way when you have the sort of fairy tale like presentation but then it starts going in really really dark directions towards the end um so just really cool genre movies um, from directors who are being allowed to clearly you know lean into what they want to do and you know i am now definitely a ty west fan and i'm excited for the possibility of um, Maxine coming next year, and I'm ex very excited for Mia Goth uh, to continue her hot streak because it feels like she's about to, you know, really break out. I mean, she's really gotten a lot of recognition, not a words recognition, but a lot of recognition from just word of mouth um, for her part in X and Pearl. I definitely think within like the film bro, film Twitter community, she's certainly been been highlighted and sickos are gonna get, sickos who want more of Mia Goth are going to be getting more of sicko Mia Goth. Yeah. In just Infinity a matter of pool. days. Coming soon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, Scott, over to you for your number eight. 
That's good. I was I I frantically was opening up your letterboxed to see why the hell my number eight wasn't in your top twenty, um, and I saw that it was your twenty one uh, or twenty two if you count the double movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number eight, Scott, is uh, Ryan John's follow up to his very widely successful mystery comedy film from twenty nineteen, Knives Out. That is, of course, Glass Onion, a Knives Out story. I think at the time in 20, I mean, 2019 also, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and say a, a pretty superior year in film. Um, all things considered a, a goaded year, I would call it. I think knives out when we recorded that episode might have either been my number 10 of that year or just outside. It has only risen in my estimation since then, as I sort of revisit it still every single year since seeing it. Um, several times in theaters in 2019. So when the news came out last year that Ryan Johnson, who we knew was going to be making sequels to the film had been, had gotten the bag to make two sequels from, you know, gotten the bag from Netflix to make two sequels for this film. And the fact that it was going to be more anthology, which I think is something that maybe we already knew as well. But uh, Benoit Blanc was of course going to be sort of the recurring character across every story. I was super excited. Um, I have been anticipating this movie for most of the year. I'm not even 100% sure it was on my most anticipated list because I'm not sure that we knew at the beginning of the year when and like when it was going to be coming out. Um, but what a what a treat. I love Ryan Johnson. Watching this film, I think I decided that Ryan Johnson is probably my number three filmmaker um, currently, currently, currently cooking right now. It, it, he's definitely top five, maybe my number three behind only maybe like Nolan and Villeneuve probably um, if I lay things out Jim Jim Cameron is up there as well and there's you know some other people well talk name about. a woman geez name a woman man sorry okay Catherine Bigelow we'll just throw her in there why not I'm kidding Greta Gerwig <laughs> would probably be the first person I'd throw in for that one um <laughs> I just feel like everyone's like oh yeah Catherine Bigelow like that's the, that's the woman filmmaker that will throw yeah. in. I, I mean Jane Campion last year I was a huge fan of Power of the Dog sure. but yeah anyway um, sexism, my own sexism aside here, uh, I just loved Glass Onion. It, it, I wasn't sure what to expect in terms of how different or similar it would be times out retrospectively, very silly of me to think that it wasn't going to be pretty different. Um, because Ryan Johnson is really not a stagnant filmmaker remotely. He's clearly very interested in the sort of mystery, um, sort of twisty type movie genre, but he's always doing something different in terms of the different like genre themes that he's playing with or like the stereotypes of a genre, you know, knives out. There are so many different things I think you could point to, but the fact that like there wasn't a a murder never really happened. Um, Spoilers for knives out. Like Harlan just commits suicide basically in the film. Like obviously there is like criminal acts trying to be perpetrated um, throughout the film. And in fact are at different times. But but the fact that like the central um, murder that is being investigated wasn't actually a murder is, of course, like one of the one of the things that it's trying to twist around, twist you around with. And in this one, it does that again um, and sort of putzes around with some other tropes of the genre and turns them on their head. And the cast is just such a treat. I mean, I love the ensemble cast from the first film. Sort of hard to to one up like, of course, you have Daniel Craig. But t- hard to one up, I feel like the the Chris Evans that was cooking in Knives Out 
along with Anna DeArmas, Michael Shannon, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Collette, um, Don Johnson. You know, just just a really powerful ensemble cast. But like the more that I have revisited Glass Onion, which I've gotten the, the chance to in theaters, I saw it in theaters, I think three times total to the week it was out and then one at a special screening here in New York last week with Janelle Monet. But the more that I, I toss that around, I think, damn, I think Janelle Monet might be better than Ana de Armas in this movie. And Ed Norton is spectacular. I think everyone's just like super committed. And one of the things that really stood out to me when Janelle Monet, obviously just talking about her own experience making the film um, that stands out for me is just like how much fun it seems like making a movie with Ryan Johnson just is not that he's not a serious filmmaker, but like he really does seem to like walk the walk of whatever Olivia Wilde's claiming to be doing on her movie sets. Like he's just like ha everyone's just having a really great time making movies with Ryan Johnson, it seems like. And I think that that particular vibe on set is something that I think it really, I think it really plays out on screen. Like the chemistry between all these different performers, um, you know, Ed Norton, Dave Bautista, Catherine Hahn, um, Leslie Odom Jr. Uh, Madeline Klein, uh, Kate Hudson, you know, I'm listening to a lot of people. I, I think a couple of them are, are, are given shorter strips than others. And I think ultimately that may be why I, I am going to hold knives out the original in higher esteem in the long run. But I mean, the real central core of this cast between Daniel Craig, Janelle Monet, Ed Norton, I'd argue Dave Bautista's in this as well, and even Madeline Klein. I think that they are they are doing really great stuff in this movie. Um, really, really enjoy what they cook up. And the mystery is satisfying. The humor is much more specific. I mean, an incredibly timely movie um, unintentionally with everything that's been going on. It, you know, it was probably targeted more broadly at, at you know, your Facebooks and your Teslas um, and Twitters of, of the world. But of course, everything that that's happened in the last six to nine months with Elon Musk, I think everything just seemed so much more sharp, um, temporally sharp in that way and 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 highly relevant, um, which is maybe a reason why the film 10 years from now isn't going to read as well as it does today, unlike the original Knives Out, which I think sort of really translates um, and is as less as much less specific, temporally relevant humor in it. But nevertheless, I mean, because I'm living in this time, because I under I feel like I'm in on all the jokes, uh, those jokes really do work. And again, even if I don't know if I think I like the, if I enjoy or appreciate this as much as the first one, Glass Onion is such a worthy sequel. I can't wait to to, you know, see what Ryan Johnson comes up with with his third Knives Out movie. And it feels like if we're going to get Daniel Craig and Ryan Johnson cooking a mystery comedy up every, let's call it two to three years, Scott, like, why not? I mean, it's just such a great time watching this film. I, I always I joke that Knives Out is my Thanksgiving film. Maybe this is going to be my Memorial Day movie. Yeah, it would make sense, I guess. Um, yeah, I would say, Scott, be, just be careful talking about Ryan Johnson being great on set and everything, because I believe you did say that about Olivia Wilde after book smart came out. And, uh, and obviously yeah. that didn't, uh, didn't turn out. So just, just be careful. We don't want to hex that too. We don't want to, we don't want to jinx Ryan Johnson into getting canceled. Uh, for yeah. Ryan's movie, got six. Ryan's got an N of six. Does, Olivia yeah. had an N of one. So I'm feeling pretty confident in it, but uh, he's yeah, got more come back to me in two to three years and we can cancel Ryan if we need to. 
Yeah, Scott, the story of these Knives Out movies and my list have been just missing because uh, the first Knives Out was my number 11 in 2019. And now, as you said, this was 21. I actually think the second watch slightly brought it down for me um, because I do think I saw some things that were deliberately hidden from the audience, you know, the first time around. I think in general, the movie does a very, very commendable job of like putting it you know, it's all in plain sight, right? As a repeat, repeated thing. Uh, I think as much as I understand what you're saying, I do think the feat of this film is like how much of it is actually in plain sight is like pretty remarkable. The fact that if you're really paying attention on the first watch, you'll get like 90% of the stuff. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, Again, it's a very admirable job what it does. Um, And I still obviously had a great time watching the movie. I've seen it twice um Mm -hmm. you know may revisit it some more probably slightly prefer the first knives out but um but yeah i mean it's it's such a fun time and i'm i'm totally down for more of these movies as well and more of daniel craig as this particular character i think um he has really moved on from from james bond without missing a beat um i mean yeah some of his like island fits in this movie are crazy like his his like pinstripe swims like that's just nuts um and not not to turn this into a second glass onion podcast since i know we talked at great length about it the first time but there's one i can't remember if i texted you this after the janelle monet q a but she was she was describing how her for one of the ways that you could pick up on her being helen in the first act of the movie when you don't yet know that Andy has a twin sister or that you pick up the fact that, that maybe this isn't Andy is because in the flashbacks with Andy before she dies, she has her hair parted on a different side. It's like, there's some like nuts details. That's like the Leo DiCaprio. Is he wearing his wedding ring or not in inception uh, theories? Basically Um, that that's that level. Isn't that real though? Isn't that like actually real? Isn't, is that not, or is that one of the debunked ones? No, no. I mean, yeah, if you you can go back and, and see, like, if he's wearing his wedding ring, he's in a dream he, or he's in a dream. Yeah. Yeah. And if he's not, then he's in reality. No, I think it's because I was I was going to say, like, I think it, I think it's actually the, the Christian of, Bale, the Christian Bale doing two different performances in the prestige. I think it's that oh, yeah. <laughs> or whatever. The level of detail that like to notice something that it, yeah, that's almost unrealistic, but like, cool, I guess. Well, I've seen the movie four times and I'd never noticed that before. Yeah. So like, it's only the fact that she talked about that, that I noticed it. But if you're observant enough, you could have picked up on the fact that something's weird. Something weird is going on. here. Sure. It's all in plain sense. It's it's a really, really good entry and a genre that I like a lot. So, um, yeah, Yeah. I don't have many, many bad things to say about it. It was it was right there. It was number 21. Good thing. All right, kick it out. Scott, my number eight is also a mystery film of sorts. It is a decision to leave. Uh, this is Park Chan-wook's um, latest film. Uh, he, of course, being um, the famed Korean filmmaker behind films like The Vengeance Trilogy, including Old Boy um, and The Handmaiden, and some of his American films like Stoker as well. Um, he's known for being sort of a genre craftsman, and here what he's, he's crafting is a police procedural on some level um, about... Um, this detective played by Park Hyil, who is investigating a, a the death of a man who f- appears to fall from a cliff, and it's originally thought to be suicide, but then um, you know he 
foul play is beginning to be suspected and he begins to feel that perhaps the the man's wife who's played by tang wei um, was somehow involved with his death the only problem is he's also falling in love with the man's wife um, and she is quite possibly falling in love with him as well um, and it actually becomes more of a romance uh, or at least becomes as much of a romance as it is a, a police procedural and a mystery and the romance is really what struck a chord with me scott i, I just found it like a very sort of devastating um and involving romance and the chemistry between Park Hyil and Tang Wei is kind of off the charts. And in particular, I think Tang Wei is giving um, an incredible performance um, in this movie and all the different layers of, you know, is she manipulating him? How um, real are her feelings for him? Um, is she just, you know, sort of leading him along to try and cover herself up? Um, you know, it, it's it's a fascinating cat and mouse game that is constantly going on anytime these people interact and you want to, you know, believe in the romance because um, of the depth of feeling that seems to be there between the two of them. But because of other things she's doing, like, you know, she destroys his, his pictures, right? All the evidence that he has, he has from the case, she destroys it because she's like, Oh, you need to, you know, this will help you move on from this or whatever. You know, she's, she acts like she's doing it out of, you know, love and appreciation for him. And then it turns out later, oh, well, actually, he's now back to thinking she did it and he doesn't have any evidence because she's destroyed it all. Just, you know, it's it's a it's a sort of um, cat and mouse game, like I said, that is just fascinating. And, and it's about these two people who um, are sort of driven by the chase. Right. And um, Park Hayil's character is like he loves investigating murders. Right. Like this is the thing which sort of keeps him going and he's married um and his wife like understands this about him that he needs like the big crime to sort of like keep his juices flowing and yeah. big I memories think, of murder vibes maybe not a good detective yeah per, per, possibly and you know i mean certainly in this case because he lets sort of his infatuation with this woman overtake sure, everything yeah. um but she becomes sort of the mystery that he is trying to solve and, you know, continues to pursue. And there's one point where he tries, you know, where he actually distances his, himself from everything um, and, you know, goes off and lives in a new place with his wife. Um, but he's like becomes an empty, broken man because he has like no interesting crimes to investigate. Uh, and obviously uh, Tang Wei's character is out of his life. Um, and then, you know, they get drawn back together and, she also, again, it seems like is driven by the sort of thrill of him, you know, investigating her, being fascinated with her, being obsessed with her. Like she, um, you know, she she is addicted to that as well. So it's it's these two people who are, you know, get a thrill out of the chase and, you know, sort of dialing that up to the highest possible stakes. And I think the most, you know, one of the most impressive things about Park Chan-wook's filmmaking here, first of all, visually this is one of the best looking movies of the year like the cinematography is gorgeous like he's playing with mirrors he's doing all sort of cool, cool visual techniques like there's something interesting going on in like almost every shot of this movie um and so much that is being conveyed with just the visuals as well but also the fact that you know he makes a movie like the handmaiden right which is um is a romance as well in all these genre trappings um, but very but erotic. Has some of, 
yeah, has yeah. some of the most explicit like sex scenes that you'll ever see in a mainstream film. Um, and then he has a movie like this, right? Which is also the this romance in genre trappings. But the the main characters, the only physical thing that happens between them is like one kiss towards the end of the film. Like it you don't get anything like what you get in the handmaiden, but it is just as, you know, sort of sensual in a way as the handmaiden is because of the performances and the chemistry between again Park Hyil and Tang Wei. Um yeah, I I just loved it. I thought it was an intoxicating world to be in and you know really fell hard for the romance between these two characters and I loved Tang Wei's performance in particular. And you know, beneath all of that is the fact that it's also a police procedural, as I'm saying, which is one of my favorite subgenres of of movie. So I love um, you know, the sort of um, really in the weeds detective stories too. So it's just a lot of things that I love Frankenstein together in a really satisfying um, way by a filmmaker who was, you know, kind of a master and certainly a master visual stylist at this point. Yeah, I, I always feel like you can really just you can really um, unearth what a film is about um, and what it wants to be for, like most of all by how like the chord the note ends on or like the theme that the, 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 the film ends on and it ends on a romantic theme, not a not a detective mystery procedural yeah. theme, I'd say. So I think that probably tells you what it's most interested in. I saw this film at the New York Film Festival and was lucky enough to have Park Chan-wook introduce the film, although he didn't stay for a Q&A afterward, which is a shame because I'm you know a huge fan of The Handmaiden. I really like his limited series, The Little Drummer Girl. Um, but one I want to revisit, but the, on the romantic on the romantic side of things that you were talking about with the juxtaposition to the handmaiden, he he really emphasized at the start during while he was introducing the film that um all of the the horny people who wanted something like the handmaiden were going to be really disappointed. So, and even old boy is known for like being you know very extremely violent too. So he he yeah. he definitely can and, and thirst, which is his vampire film. I don't know if you see. I don't think you've seen that one, Scott. But it no. is also you know as you can imagine, it has some really gnarly scenes in it. It's thirsty. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it can't be worse so than Bones it, and All, right? I mean, if I've watched Bones and All, no, like, is it not. worse than Bones and That? Okay, cool. It's not. It's not. It cool. speaks to his versatility, though, as a filmmaker, that he can make. Something oh, yeah. So He's got so much range. Elegant. Yeah. This film is just elegant, like is, is the word that comes to mind. So I, I you know, I think he's he's brilliant. I, 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 I only I'm yeah, I I want to revisit this. I feel like maybe I missed mm -hmm. something on the first watcher. I don't know. I want to revisit it. Fair enough. I mean, watching it in the festival with, you know, or surrounded by 20 other movies and stuff, you know, some things well, might miss in that environment for sure. That and, and I'll be really honest, Scott, like it is obviously this is a Korean language film, a huge chunk of the audience like spoke Korean. And it was very weird for the audience to be laughing about like, you know, so, so, oh, sometimes yeah. hat like a couple seconds before like mm -hmm. you are able to read the subtitles. And th interesting, th yeah. I don't want to say that's like a, a huge negative about the experience of watching the film, but I do think that change like the humor is not sure. like you are not with the timing of the humor in the film. Sure. Um, like the audience and and I were not on the same wavelength at the same time, and I think that does affect the experience in a film like this. So I'm curious to rewatch this and you know by myself and in my apartment. All right, you're number 7, Scott. Scott's one you you've already talked about. I'll be I'll be frank, Scott, really surprised this didn't make your top 10 list. I thought at the beginning of the year that it that it would. 
Um, but that is Koganada's sophomore feature after Yang. Uh, this was, you know, one of my favorite movies coming out of Sundance at the beginning of the year. It was one of those films where like we literally knew what the release date of the film was, but we felt so strongly about it that we wanted to go ahead and see it right up front. But just because of the pure strength of Koganada's debut film, Columbus, back from 2017. And Scott, like it maybe not as good as Columbus, but certainly a worthy follow up to to that film. Talked about the elegance of Decision to Leave and how beautiful uh, the film the film looked. There is just a and you mentioned this as well when you were talking about the film earlier. There's such a softness and a tenderness with the way Koganada is able to capture, edit, um, score his films that is totally and completely arresting, I think, as a viewer. Like, you just feel totally, like, you kind of just feel weightless, not in this, like, joyous, bubbly way, but, like, this, like, emotionally, like, in, in scenes that you feel like you should be emotionally weighed down by the events that are happening on screen you, you almost like the way he is able to communicate that visually and uh, and auditorially um like you almost feel weightless watching these people experience their traumas um which is such a unique way of of filmmaking i just i can't think of a single director who's able to capture it in the same way that Koganada does I, I think there's people who come close i even think Coriata is like one of the people who kind of like gets towards like edges toward that that um that sort of experience with broker i can't speak for his other movies but i'm sure that there's some similarities in the way they make you feel when you're watching it but Koganata just is it just seems so unique in his ability to just breathe fresh life and air into incredibly emotionally turbulent movies um and th and this one was certainly that like you sort of laid out the the synopsis of the film earlier, but really about, I mean, this film is mostly about grief, just, just like Columbus was in a lot of ways, a film about grief. This is a film about grief, but from a slightly different perspective, um, you know, ra rather than a, a father grieving the loss, sorry, a, sorry, a son grieving the loss of a father and maybe um, a, a daughter grieving the loss of innocence and childhood and needing to move on um, and having sort of outgrown the area that she's in. Th this is a film about, um, you know, a father and parents maybe grieving the loss of a son um, or surrogate son, if you want to put it that way, a, a member of the family, if you will. And but also in this sort of like sort of life affirming honesty about how you how you pursue the sort of like more techno cyberpunk elements of the film, like the fact that that their surrogate son was not a clone, but um, um, an AI, I guess, of some sort of a machine. I forget what they're called in the uh, in the film. They have a specific name in, in the movie. But I think that the sort of the pursuit of preservation and the pursuit of which then becomes for Colin Farrell's character in the film, who I 100 percent agree his best performance of the year. Like, I know he's getting all the buzz for Banshees and you might even win the Oscar for that role. But I, I think that I, I found his his performance in this film just like emotionally overwhelming in a lot of ways. And I think that his the pursuit of preservation of Yang in this film originally because his daughter, um, who he loves deeply, just wants wants him to be restored or preserved in some way. 
and that ultimately becoming a sort of quest for not just preservation, but also the knowledge um, of the lives that that Yang had had maybe led before he was sort of commissioned to be a part of this family and seeking out the people that he might have um, lived with and experienced before to, I don't know, to like tell them the news to do whatever it wants. And it just becomes this sort of, you know, it's not an epic film, but it does feel like it's an odyssey for Colin Farrell's character. And it's just one of those films that there's so many different moments, like little moments and shots, frames that have stuck with me since Sundance and will probably stick with me for years to come. I think that Colin Farrell is the best performance in this film, but I think Jodie Turner-Smith, as well as um, the daughter who's played by Malia Emma, I'm not going to even try to pronounce her last name, mm -hmm. so I apologize. Um, I, I think that they're all really operating well. I think Jodie Turner-Smith probably has the least to do of the three, but the relationship between Colin Farrell and his daughter in the film, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a parent. I don't have that kind of relationship, but even that just felt like it sort of almost, it just sort of like stirs up something inside of me watching that relationship sort of bud and develop. And it, and in a lot of ways it, at the beginning of the film, they really do use Yang played by Justin H. Min as not just a companion for their daughter to be, to bridge the cultural gap of their daughter's, you know, cultural heritage and the fact that they can't really offer her that enrichment around that, but also as almost a, a surrogate uh, parent as well. And they feel disconnected from just like from Megan. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, sure, sure. Yeah, why not? Um, but but then and, and how the sort of death of that. So not only are they mourning the loss of this member of the family, but they're having to come to terms with the evolution of what that means for their family as well. The fact that they need to connect more, more deeply and directly with, uh, with um, Mika, who's their daughter. And I just found, even as someone who's not a parent, I just found, I just I did find that experience deeply moving. And I think that it, as, as with Koganata's first film, it knows when to get out. It knows not to overstay its welcome. And all of a sudden, you know, a hundred minutes have passed and the film is over. And it's just so gentle. Also, just on a completely unrelated note, has a banger of a credit scene. Um, you know, add it add it to the uh, oeuvre uh, this year of P of films that have some sort of dance sequence in either the end credits or beginning credits, whatever you want to call them. This one's up there. Yeah, I mean, maybe it is a little surprising and didn't rank higher for me. I think unfairly so. I probably. Uh you know, I'm comparing it too much to, well, two films really that I would consider among my all-time favorite films. One being Columbus that you mentioned just because that's Koganata's first feature. The other one mm -hmm. being uh, Edward Yang's Yee Yee, which uh, sure. I think has some similar ideas about the people around us helping to see our own lives, helping us to see our own lives and understand our own lives um, in ways that we never could on our own. Um, mm -hmm. I think is is definitely one of the things that Colin Farrell is experiencing by going through the memories, you know, that are extracted from Yang. Um, yeah. But yeah, just some really, really lovely scenes. There's a conversation about tea um, that oh, Yang God. has yeah. with Colin Farrell's character. Um, yeah. And there's also a scene between Yang and the little girl sort of walking through a forest type um area i don't even it's know. like a garden it's, it's just like a big garden yeah. like an arboretum or some sort um, yeah. 
but there's an extended metaphor about branches that I think is really um, moving as well. So Co yeah, Coconata, even two movies in, you know when you're watching a Coconata movie, and uh, that's really impressive. And yeah. Um, yeah, he's one of he's you know he's one of the filmmakers where I will just I am I'm there day one no matter what the next film is. Um, oh, time to watch Pachinko. Then he's doing is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I, I probably shouldn't say that. I, I'm probably a fraud for saying that without having watched Pachinko. But um, and it's not just him; it's also Justin Chone. But um, I will say, Scott, that yeah. you turn on Pachinko, and I can I will affirm that you can in fact tell that when Coconut is directing. Yeah. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. Um, Scott, speaking of filmmakers that I'm totally in the bag for, uh, Noah Baumbach. Uh, he's the director of my number seven film, White Noise. Um, I'm probably one of the only people who has this movie in their top ten, Scott, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Um, like I said, I, I'm so in the bag for Noah Baumbach that it's just... Um, I was pretty much always going to really enjoy this film, but I think... He is really able to put his own stamp on this, you know, supposedly unadaptable beast of a novel by Don DeLillo um, and turn it into this sort of verbose screwball comedy with this, you know, dialogue, this this rapid fire back and forth dialogue between the central family of the movie that it's just really true to, to what um, Bombac does best and is also really funny. One of the funniest movies of the year. For sure. And and Baumbach is one of the funniest writers out there, I think. And it was nice to see him get back in those rhythms after something like Marriage Story, which doesn't have a lot of humor, obviously, but which I mean, I, I loved that movie. But, um, you know, I think there's certain types of Baumbach films which connect more with me. Um, and so, you know, just on, on a surface level, I really enjoyed all of that stuff and the performances of Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig, Don Cheadle, Rafi Cassidy, the whole cast, everyone is really, you know, on the same wavelength with what the movie is and um, is able to deliver the oftentimes sort of, again, verbose, wordy dialogue um, in, a, in a way that sounds natural and makes you believe in sort of the heightened world that he has created. Um, so I really loved all of that stuff. And then um, I think the themes more or less resonated with me, even even if, you know, th things might get slightly away from Bomb back in the third act. You know, you have some ideas that I think resonate really strongly about the fear of death and the, the things that we do to distract ourselves on a daily basis from, um, you know, the reality that someday we're going to die and going to extreme lengths sometimes. But um, ultimately, despite the sort of heftiness of that, I think finding um, something warm and optimistic in the end, uh, you know, just kind of an idea that perhaps by coming together, uh, we can um, we can make the most of, you know, this life while while we have it. And um, if you're going to believe in something, as as the, the nun says to to Jack and Babette at the end, if you're going to believe in something, you know, believe in each other. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I just really bought into what Bombeck was doing. I smiled almost through the whole movie. And um, I think after hearing how divisive it was, I was worried going into it. And the fact that it, it really hit so strongly for me just made me um, enjoy it all the more because um, I, I was expecting to be disappointed and then I wasn't. And, you know, even for the people who didn't enjoy it, um, 
the the closing credits. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about credit sequences. I think this one has the has the one to beat. Brand new LCD sound system song, New Body Roomba. That is so fun to watch, but also parrots some of the themes of the movie and and you know has a point as well. So it's a blank check movie. I don't know. I, I sincerely doubt that Bombback is ever going to get the type of money and free reign to make something like this again. Um, but I'm certainly glad that he was given this opportunity and that this movie exists and whatever he does next, you know, like I was saying with Koganada, even if he has to scale it back, make something that costs 10 times less than this. Um, I'm there because he is, he's a filmmaker whose work um, means a lot to me and, uh, and it always will. Yeah. We reviewed this on the podcast recently, so no need to to rehash stuff. Yeah. But I'm not gonna begrudge you Bombach. Still a really well made film. I take right, I take six. after Yang. I take I take after Yang, but uh, over on terms of credit sequences, but uh reasonable minds can differ because it's a great I mean it's a great credit scene. Also the, I mean the song and I, rules. And I yeah, I love L C D sound system as well, so I'm sure that that plays into it. And the song is just it's a classic L C D banger. So I love it. All right, Scott, you're number six. My number six, you've talked about it already. It was in your top 10. So I don't know. You can probably figure it out <laughs> at this point. Uh, but it is Jordan Peele's third feature. Nope. I saw this twice in theaters, once with my mom who loved it. I got to see it you know, just a couple weeks ago in 70 millimeter at link at a special screen at Lincoln Center where they were doing some they were doing a, a series that was curated by Peel talking about his inspirations um, for the film. He was there in person talking about it along with Kiki Palmer and Michael Abels and a couple other people involved with the filmmaking. And what a treat. You know, I have enjoyed both of Jordan Peele's first two features very similar to what you were describing like get out obviously I, I probably like get out more than you do you probably like us a little bit more than i do but strong you know debut you know first two films from a promising filmmaker who has a really clear grasp on a the genre he's working in but b also how to create something within that genre that feels fresh and interesting um especially when it would be really easy to sort of, I think, fall victim to either, you know, tell, telling a story that doesn't really get your message across in the way you want it to. And I think that it's just so awesome that he then sort of takes that pedigree that he built over his first and second movies and just says, well, you all know the kind of filmmaker I am. What if I, what if I did something wild? What if I got, a, a budget two to three X what I've gotten before went out to the desert outside LA and made an action blockbuster, um, you know, full summer blockbuster proportions. And what if I brought along Daniel Kluya, who honestly, Scott, we talk about him a lot on this podcast and how great we think he is and how maybe he's like one of the best currently working actors. Not enough people are talking about Daniel Kluya. I'm going to say it on outside this podcast. Not enough people are talking about Daniel Kluya in general. The guy is an absolute master. There's some weird stuff, I think, going on with his life coach we don't need to talk about. But um, overall, Kaluuya is just cooking. And Kiki Palmer is right there with him in this movie. I think the supporting cast is also also rocks. Like Brandon Perea, um, 
was sort of I was a little nervous about coming onto the screen because he's like really played for comic relief early on. He has this bit about his ex-girlfriend who's like a model trying to become an actress early on, which I thought might be over overused. But honestly, it's used the perfect amount because then they don't bring it back up again later, which I think is a really good choice. Steven Yoon, not given as much as I might have wanted in the film, but still, I think, is very effective as someone um, playing this sort of grown up child star who went through a lot of trauma and then you have you know a couple sort of more bit performances here and there that I, that I think do stand out um so overall the cast on this film is great and that's you know before even mentioning you know the actual meat and potatoes of this film a just to like lay it out on the table because we're talking about blockbusters maybe being a theme of you know, there were some really strong blockbusters here. The blockbuster elements of this film rip. Some of the stuff in the last act of the film is really some of the best blockbuster scenes in the last few years. It really is. The scene in the Gulch where um, where OJ is sort of trying to lure Jean Jacket out into the open so they can get the Oprah shot. Um, at that point, like when that Michael Abel score kicks in, he starts doing the, the run through, through the Gulch. Like that's like one of the best scenes of the year, full stop. Like, it's just so, so good sort of, you know, head, head bumping as, as it sort of, as the score kicks in and then the full run through is just amazing. Um, so the, the blockbuster elements are there, but I also think that there is more going on. Scott, you talked about the themes of the film when you were, when you were talking about your opinions on the film, and how it really is saying something or trying to say something about how we not that we other people necessarily, but we certainly exploit um, people's identities to create something uh, to create entertainment. And, you know, may, maybe Hollywood is getting better about that these days. But this film is obviously very focused on the metaphor of um, is it I forget the name of the sitcom G Gordy's Home. Is that what it's Gordy's called? Home, yeah. Gordy's home. Yeah. Like there's obviously this big metaphor of, you know, having this, these, to this like token Korean, Korean kid who I, I, is it ironic that this kid is like, you know, this, there's a movie about this uh, Asian kid in the year that Kihei Kwan is like made his comeback and might win an Oscar and be relevant yeah. again. Like super interesting timing on that, frankly. But there's this, you know, token Asian kid on this sitcom and they're using a monkey and they're, and they're doing this for entertainment and for spectacle. And the price that you pay for this side, this type of tokenization and othering, um, you know, there's a there's a there's a quote or two that that get flashed on cards at the beginning of the movie talking about. Um, uh, I'm forgetting the exact wording of the quote, but uh, talking about how from the perspective of, I think, white people, if you're to interpret the quote, how you're going to take minorities or take these token um, identities and make them vile, essentially. And I think this whole idea of, of that happening and, and how that translates onto things that are alien, quite literally in the sense of uh, later in the movie with Jean Jacket and how that at some point is a weapon used against people. And with Gordy's home, of course, it's when the ape snaps and kill, you know, kills, uh, seems like kills multiple people, um, you know, horribly wounds the 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 woman um, who you do see later on in the movie, I guess, very briefly for a few minutes and then is ultimately put down, which of course, you know, for full spoilers, I suppose for Nope, like 
that is basically what happens. Um, it is the microcosm um, for the movie. It is very meta, but it is this notion that, you know, we did this thing to Jean Jacket, right? Like this whole notion of, you know, we did this to Gordy by putting him in this situation, putting an ape in this situation that he shouldn't be in. We've made a spectacle of him. And this is the, and this is sort of the, the price that, that we paid for that, that then gets passed back to, to Gordy. Cause he is put down, he is shot um, on the set. And later on, you know, I think that maybe, may, maybe you could like shrug a little bit and be like, well, why is Jean Jacket there in the first place? Um, I, I guess you could argue, but the point is he was there in Agua Dolce and all of a sudden Steven Yoon is sort of paying that, 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 that trauma, that abuse forward, making Jean Jacket a spectacle. And that's the price we have to pay for it. And ultimately that gets paid back to Jean Jacket in, in the final scenes of the, in the film when they, when they kill Jean Jacket. But is it, I think that maybe it's not as deft at its social messaging as something like get out or even us, um, your mileage may vary, I guess, across those films, maybe. But I think the blockbustery elements of the film were just, I mean, Scott, they, they took my breath away. Honestly. I just didn't think Jordan Peele had it in him. And he did. And I think maybe that's the most gratifying part of it all, because he's still able to have that sort of horror with the social message. But actually, here, here's an action blockbuster as well. And it's damn good. And that is my number six. Well said, Scott. Um, yeah, Nope is one that I think we're going to keep coming back to over the years and um, yep. it's going to just continue to age well, I think. Um, Absolutely. All right. One more film, Scott, and then we'll take a short break. Uh, and that is my number six. It's uh, the most impressive uh, debut feature of the year. And that is After Sun, directed by Charlotte Wells. Um, this film, Scott, is just kind of overwhelming certainly on a craft level and i think for a lot of people as well on an emotional level um but you know we talked about it at the time the the fact that this um movie focuses so more on showing so, so much more on showing rather than telling is something that um i think is is the sign of a really accomplished filmmaker and so for charlotte wells to do that in her debut feature is you know beyond impressive um, that she is able to tell so much of this, this story um, through the visuals. And this story is about um, a woman who years named Sophie, who years after um, this vacation she takes with her father is reflecting on the vacation and um, how it seems to be that we don't know for sure. It seems to be sort of her last memory that she has of her father. We don't know exactly what happened to him and to their relationship, but she is watching these videos from their vacation and, and also remembering it herself in her own head um, in a sort of attempt to try and search for clues in a way um, as to how things went so wrong with her father um, following the events of the film. Again, we don't know exactly how, but we know that we, we can guess and um, you know, we have at least a general sense that perhaps her father has died. Um, but or at the very least is completely estranged from her. One of the, other. yes, is completely estranged. Um, yeah. but it's, you know, like I said, the, just the structure of the film is so interesting. The way that, um, Wells is really puts you right in Sophie's headspace and that the film, um, transitions between these, you know, actual 
home videos, right, that the young Sophie recorded on the vacation. Um, and then it'll go like to her memory of a scene of a particular moment. And then it'll go to certain scenes from her dad's perspective, maybe, which are quite possibly imagined entirely by Sophie. Um, but it really feels like she's put you there and you are going through the process of remembering along with Sophie. And that's just such a fascinating dynamic um, and, and sort of framing device for the film um, that right away signals how impressive it is. Um, but yeah, the performances in this movie uh, of Frankie Corio, who plays the young Sophie, and then um, Paul Meskel, who plays um, her father, Callum, um, are just masterclasses in subtlety, and particularly Paul Meskel. Um, you know, it's the best acting performance. It's it's the best performance by an actor this year. I'll I'll go out. I'll just go ahead and say it. Um, the what he's able to convey, just you know, without using words, like like I said, is is pretty breathtaking. There's one scene where he is in the mirror talking to his daughter, who's on the other side of the wall, and um, we can see his face feeling one thing um within you know in response to what she's saying but his his mouth his words saying something completely different in the under the guise of you know sort of putting on a face for his daughter and pretending like it's okay um and really the whole film is is about you know the not knowing of your you know when you're a child in in um in these you know positions and um your your parents are, are going through things that you may not understand um or that you know you, pro you probably don't understand um and with time you may understand them with time you may not right uh, in the case of sophie i think the the place that we get to at the end of the film is still one of ambiguity yeah she's you know we still don't know and she still doesn't know exactly where things went wrong so to speak but um it's you know, it could be a frustrating experience for some people because of that, because the movie does not offer any any answers. Um, but by not offering answers, it is offering an answer, I guess I would say. And um, I just found it a, a very sort of specific and um, emotionally captivating in its restraint um, story that just feels like something that I haven't really seen before. Um, the way it's told you know, the the depth, the emotional depth that Charlotte Wells is able to get to. I say that, and yet I'm going to talk about a film in a little bit that um, has a similar themes of, you know, trying to understand your parent um, as a child. But still, I think After Sun is doing something slightly different from that film. And certainly, again, the presentation of the story um, is so unique that, yeah, I, I, you know, this is one that I, I came out of and I kind of, you know, I knew it was really good. I didn't know exactly what to make of it, but just in thinking about it more and thinking about certain images and details, um, I just grow in my admiration for it. And um, I totally understand the many, many people who are calling this a masterpiece. And I think Charlotte Wells is gonna have a really tough act to follow with whatever she does next. Yeah. Yeah. absolutely all right scott that completes the first half of our list so we are going to take a short break and when we come back our top five movies of the year so stay tuned we'll be right back
Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, we're in the home stretch, our top five films of the year. And um, as a matter of fact, it sounds like we may have the same number five film of the year. So on the count of three, why don't we just uh, say it together? One, two, three. I guess I'll yeah. introduce it since I've been going second on all these, Scott. But Top Gun yeah, Maverick, go for it. Uh, is... Um, of course, the sequel to the 1985, 1986 film Top Gun uh, from Tony Scott. Sort of an iconic 80s action movie that Scott is not good. It's not a good movie. Um, it's very boring and cheesy not. and has not aged well at all. Um, so, you know, you wouldn't blame anyone. And certainly I think both of us came into Top Gun Maverick with uh, with not quite high expectations, to say the least. But Scott... It was our mistake because um, just as you should have never doubted Steven Spielberg, we should have never doubted Tom Cruise. Um, and really the Tom Cruise of the, of this whole thing is what makes it work more than anything. Um, it is um, an all-time great blockbuster, um, but it picks up with Tom Cruise's Pete Maverick Mitchell, um, you know, decades after the events of the first film. Um, he's still, you know, a, a daredevil. He's making this run to Mach 10 at the start of the film, which kind of recalls the um, sound barrier sequence from the right stuff. But um, then he is called back to be an instructor at Top Gun, um, and he connects with uh, Rooster, which is Miles Teller, um, who is, of course, the son of Goose, his uh, former wingman who dies in the first film. Spoilers. Okay. Yeah, well, forty-year-old movie or thirty-year-old movie, yeah. whatever at this point. Yeah, I know. Um, and so you know, all of that sort of comes bubbling back up to the surface. Um, but he is tasked with preparing um, the the new flight recruits, uh, including Rooster and Hangman, who's played by Glenn Powell, and a few others as well, for this new mission um, to bomb a specific site um, on the enemy's base. Um, the enemy being referred to in the abstract because that's how they refer to the, to them in the movie. Um, I think they do, you know, the son of a kind of a sidebar, but I think they do as good a job as you possibly could of sort of divorcing any of the politicization of this out of it. Right. And, you know, I think anyone who might have any sort of qualms about like, Oh, you know, we're promoting the military industrial complex or whatever with this movie and, you know, the American military, it, they really go to lengths to uh, take all of that sort of element out of it. Um, it really is, it's more of a Mission Impossible movie than anything. It's more of a Star Wars movie than anything, right? Um, you have like these scenes of Tom Cruise setting up the mission. Here's what we got to do. And it's all explained so clearly. Like it, it just feels like a godsend, right? When, you know, the, the MCU and all these other cinematic universes have gotten so convoluted with their plotting. And, you know, you have to watch three TV shows and everything just to understand what's going on in the movie. It's like, nope, we're going to have Tom Cruise stand in front of a blackboard and explain to you everything that, you know, you're trying to do in five minutes. And it's all going to make sense. Like, you why just can't need two miracles, the God? It's easy. That? You just need miracles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it it is i mean the whole thing is miraculous in a way but the the flight sequences are mind blowing and they reshot this thing so many times because you know so that they they could get all that stuff right 
Um, but you know, you have every all all of the actors were actually up in the cockpit of these these planes. Like it's insane the stuff that they did, um, and it, it's all up there on the screen, and it's all spectacular. Um, there's some amazing needle drops in the movie. The vibes are just immaculate. Um, both, you know, the the Top Gun stuff, obviously Tom Cruise just being um, the insane uh, megawatt movie star that he is. Um, his romance with Jennifer Connelly's character, who, um, you know, it, it works better despite them spending probably less screen time on it than the romance between him and Kelly McGillis and the original Top Gun. Um, yeah. Everything about it just, you know, is just awesome. And then, you know, the of course, the third act just delivers in every single way. It's so emotionally satisfying in addition to just being, you know, um, cool to watch um, the all of the emotional through lines and his relationship with Iceman, uh, Val Kilmer's character, um, and with um, with Rooster, of course, how that all resolves itself. Um, Hangman showing back up, like you know, it, it, it is the fist pump moment of the year, easily, right when when Hangman um, appears to save the day at the end of the movie when it looks like Rooster and Maverick are. Um, are goners and then you see yeah. the plane blow up and you just hear glenn powell come in and um ladies and gentlemen this is your savior speaking um yeah. the way he delivers that line and um I, I what is it i think uh rooster says to him like oh you sound good uh hangman he's like i am good i am good uh, glenn powell just owns it um yeah. he he just he's awesome he's a movie star like he he could he could eventually get to that Tom Cruise place, I think, if he wanted to. But um, he's got it's all about TC. That's the only thing. He's got to run. Yeah, he does. It's all about TC Legend, Scott. He makes this thing work. There's this whole sort of meta narrative going on in the movie about, oh, is <laughs> is Maverick too old to be doing this? Right. And you know that he's also like out here to, he to respond to the yeah. people who say that Tom Cruise is too old to be doing this. Um, and it's all just so wonderful. And I saw this with my dad uh, when it came out, which was an awesome theater experience. And then I went back to see it a second time um, on the 4th of July. And that was when it was really like, okay, this is like an all time, all timer, like the theater experience watching it that second time, just like um, knowing all the beats and them still hitting just as hard. Um, it's 100%. it's an unbelievable yeah. movie, Scott. That that they were able to pull this off and that it was so satisfying. Like I never would have cared about Top Gun Maverick um, <laughs> before, sure. you know, before seeing this movie. And now, you know, it's one it's one of my favorite movies of the year. It may end up being one of my favorite movies, period, uh, in the long run. I, I mean, it's just so good. Yeah, that, I mean, with this kind of movie, when you go back to it a second time. Um, you know, there's other genres that, that this applies to, too. But when you can go back to it a second time in theaters and the experience not drop at all, like that's how, you know, you got something really special on your hand, because, you know, if the novelty wears off on the second viewing, then it's not an all timer. I mean, that's just simply put, it's just not an all timer, you know, yeah. but that's that. I mean, that is just sort of the the spec, the spectacle of it is so great. It's such a clean film. You know, maybe maybe there's a few notes here and there with some of the what you call them, maybe tertiary characters of the of the film but in all the in all the departments that matter this film this film is there and it delivers and it's my number five of the year as well 
Joseph Kaczynski, who is not, I mean, like, uh, yeah, Tom Cruise, whatever. Like, Tom Cruise is ultimately the, the person in the engine room of this movie, even though he's not the director. He, it seems like he's that way on all of his movies. I mean, Mission Impossible, Macquarie directs directs all of them at this point, but it is still him and it, like, it still feels like him and Cruise collaboratively. And I, I kind of feel like this is probably how it was for Kaczynski and him as well. And they have worked together before. The movie was not very good. Um, but the fact that they can come back and deliver like this is, I mean, it's just remarkable. It's just remarkable that um, in the year 2022, you can get a movie that like a sequel that is instantly in the conversation of greatest sequels of franchises of all time, of all time, period. Um, to know, a movie that isn't all, even good. Like, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, like movies that yeah. aren't good. Um, first movies aren't good. Then having a sequel in the conversation for best sequel of all time. Like, that's like the crazy part. I mean, it probably helps that it's been like 40 years almost. I mean, I know it's not 35 years since the first movie came out, 36 years, but still no, no, no business being as good as it is. I'll try to say stuff that you didn't say because I pretty much agree with everything you already said. Uh, the beach scene in this one, like the replicated <laughs> beach scene, pure vibes. I don't know what they're doing. Tom Cruise doesn't know what they're doing. The boys John don't know Hamm what they're doing. Doesn't know what they're doing. And John Hamm is also great in the movie, I should say. Yeah. Um, no one knows what they're doing on this beach, but it's pure vibes. Um, there was a period of time where my favorite tweet uh, for like a three month span was I watched Top Gun Maverick for the plot and then the plot. And it's just pictures of Glenn Powell, mm -hmm. Miles Teller, Tom Cruise, Monica. Um, is it Monica Barbara, Barbara. or whatever? Yeah. Um, on the beach playing whatever two way, whatever the hell they're playing, two way football, whatever they call it, uh, rather, rather than, of course, beach volleyball in the original. But just immaculate vibes, um, you know, may maybe the the drama between Maverick and Roosters, like kind of like a little bit like immature and overblown on the rooster point. But that's also part of the character arc. But I think that's part of the character arc, though, right? You're yeah. shaking your head at me, but I was making a point there that I think like that's the journey that Rooster goes on over the course of the film. He's growing up um, sure, and come and coming to terms with, you know, the reality of life that his father, um, you know, died in this line of work and he's going to have to forgive um, Maverick for trying to blacklist him out of out of the Air Force, sorry, out of the Navy, um, because at some point you have to understand what he was doing. And I think that um, you talked about emotionally rewarding. I mean, the end of the film when not just when Glenn Powell saves the day and gets his moment, but when Maverick and Rooster hug at the end of the film, uh, you know, that mm. that win feels earned. It feels earned over the course of the film, um, which I can't really say the same for the original movie when you get this sort of emotionally cathartic moment of Maverick and Iceman sort of hugging it out or whatever. Obviously, different different kind of relationship there when it's like, you know, rivals and competitors, things like that. But uh, overall, I love this film. It's a great film. I have it. I have it on, you know, 4K Blu-ray already, along with Nope. Actually, speaking of films like it made the list of 4K Blu-rays of purchase in year. And, um, you know, that's a I, I'm not a huge physical media collector. So when you get the when you get the day one purchase from me, it shows you how much um, how much the movie means to me. And I can see myself revisiting this film frequently. And, you know, if we're still doing a podcast in 
the end of 2029 we have a best movies of the decade like if this film's not somewhere in that top 50 list i'd be surprised you know whether it's in the top 10 or top 20 or whatever who knows but it's good yeah i'm if there's one film from 2022 that I would recommend to legitimately anyone, it's Top Gun Maverick. Now, most people have probably watched it already because it is the second highest yeah. grossing movie of the year. But And it is the um, highest grossing movie of the year in the U.S. Yes. Um, so, you know, most people have probably, are, probably already watched it, which is great. But, um, yeah, they could just keep putting this thing back in theaters every now and then, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Like, the, the serotonin high of, like... <laughs> the transition yeah. from like Nicole Kidman's AMC stinger into Tom Cruise, like introducing the movie into yeah. like the first notes of the score of the actual oh, movie is like yeah. unmatched the, the serotonin high there. Like it, it's, it's such a rush. Um, yeah. And it was, it was so cool in the second watch to you talking about serotonin rushes, like a, just like the film can still make you feel as good on the second time when you're watching it yourself, but then also to see everyone else, like, when you see like six, the 60 something year old sitting next to you, like yeah. leaning into the movie in the final act, you're like, yeah, we're cooking here. Yeah, this is, it, it's something special. Um, all right, Scott, we're moving right along. We're into the Champions sure. League places now of the list. Uh, yeah. What's your, what's your number four, Scott? Let's go. What's making the qualifiers? Yeah. What's making, no, no, no. Do you go straight into the Champions League now if you finish fourth? Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Needs to not be that way, but these days it is. Yeah. Yeah. So for, for me, Scott, uh, you know, there's been a couple sophomore films um, on, on the list. You talked about one earlier. I talked about one earlier with After Yang. I think, um, I don't know. Did you talk about one earlier as well? Or is it maybe just that one that I'm thinking about? But this one for me is an example of a film that takes the very few things that the first feature got wrong and may and did a make good, I think um on that and that is cooper rafe's sophomore outing you talked about it in your 2311 cha-cha real smooth a film that rafe if i'm remembering correctly did not write for him to star in although he ultimately did and it was something that he, i think he felt deeply insecure about starring in for a variety of reasons that we don't need to get into um in this form we never had a full episode i don't think about this movie i know we talked about it on the sundance podcast but i'm not yeah we were pretty we... pretty deep i think on the sundance episode but yeah 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 so we've shared a lot of thoughts on it but this is one of those movies that i'm not going to call it a guilty pleasure because i genuinely think it is a very good movie but yeah. watching this film for the first or second and even the second time too when i revisited it when it came out on apple tv plus over the summer it like it's just one of those films that i, I felt like i was just vibrating watching the movie Rafe is just such a personally relevant filmmaker because there's so few. And I think you were starting to get into this when you were talking about your thoughts. There's so few filmmakers that are currently, you know, I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call Cooper Rafe mainstream, but like popular filmmakers who like are making movies that like some people have like a reasonable number of people have seen that are creating and are not just writing, but directing stories that like are relevant for people of our generation that feel like real experiences that we have had, um, like Cooper Rafe. I mean, just no one is doing that, um, to my knowledge, and at least not in a way that speaks as personally to me as he does. And I guess especially about the experiences he's talking about, right? Like you think about 
Shithouse, his, his first film, is about, you know, being a freshman in college, being away from home, being lonely in that sense and feeling isolated and, and trying to find connection. I think that the ending is completely wrong in that movie. Like, I just think that the, it's just so it, it is so wide of the mark um, after 90 minutes of incredibly, you know, resonant filmmaking. I I felt like a crime had been done to me by the end of that movie. Um, obviously, it didn't really affect my opinion about the rest of it because it is something that just spoke very, very clearly to me. And, but I was just so gratified and so happy that with this film, with his sophomore film, Cha Cha Real Smooth, he found an ending that felt earned and right for the characters and deserved. And, you know, I don't think it's the best part of the, the ending is not the best part of the movie, but the fact that the ending was able to tie the, tie the bow um, on top of this present of a film for me was something that I can't just not talk about just because of my relationship with his first film. But overall, like I'm, I'm a sucker for Dakota Johnson. I'll, I'll raise my hand and say that. And a lot of people say that she's like brutally miscast in this film. I don't know what those people are talking about. Like, I think she's yeah. great as this sort of like aloof mom um, of, you know, she, you know, she became a, a sort of parent when she was very young. I think it's if implied, if not stated that she had, she had her daughter when she was still a teenager and um, her name, Dakota Johnson's character's name is Domino and her daughter's name is Lola played by Vanessa Burghardt. And not only is is he able to tell the story of himself as his character's name is Andrew, who is similarly wayward, like similarly aloof and sort of wandering through life almost. Um, almost it feels like sort of on autopilot where he's graduated college, but he's not figured out what he wants to do. He feels rudderless. He doesn't really know what he wants. He's applying to jobs, but doesn't really know why he wants to do to, like other than just have a job. He doesn't really know why he wants these jobs. Um, like there's a scene where he's doing a job interview where he doesn't know what, how to answer the question of why do you want to work here? And I think he's through this relationship that he forms with Domino and Domino's daughter, Lola, he's able to, I think, discover in himself um, a direction, not in terms of a career, but in terms of like a life affirming direction about how he how he wants to live his life not necessarily the specifics and the details of you know does he want to work at this like digital marketing firm that he ends up at the end of the film but he learns like what he wants out of life and i think that as someone who recently you know in the last five years graduated college and i won't say that i have felt rudderless and not not knowing what i wanted to do here but there are certainly flashes of feeling like you know what am I doing? Have the best years of my life already passed me by? How do I want to live? Like, how do I want to continue to live my life? And in, in what ways do I feel gratified or fulfilled? And I think all of these movies are just so validating towards the experience of just being really unsure about what you're doing with your life. And the specifics of Andrew's situation do not muddy the waters on the higher level macro themes of what he's talking about. And he was able to really craft an experience that spoke deeply to me. But in addition to that was incredible is incredibly funny. This is a hilarious film The some of the scenes 
of him, he ends up being a sort of a, a party starter for bot and bar mitzvahs throughout a good chunk of this film. And some of the scenes at the bar mitzvahs are just genuinely <coughs> so funny. Some of the funniest scenes of the year. Um, so not only is it emotionally affecting the journey he goes on, the relationship that he has uh, almost this sort of like forbidden relationship, this relationship that like uh, everyone, including Andrew knows just like can't sh like shouldn't and cannot work um, in spite of like the deep longing that he feels for it. And yet, nevertheless, he is sort of he pursues it and and stuff comes of that. But it, I found it emotionally rewarding. I found it comedically rewarding. And the performances, Cooper Rafe, it, it sort of shocked me when he said that he didn't write, like he didn't write this this character for him. He wrote it, he wrote it for someone else to play it because it felt like he his sort of like boyish charm and charisma, um, his way of carrying himself just fit perfectly for this role of Andrew. Thought Dakota Johnson was perfect. I, I, I talked about her already, but I think the real revelation in this film, the more that I think about it, the more I sit with it. And it's not only A, that it highlights uh, an actress like Vanessa Burghart, but also the fact that the story, like the the, the character of Lola, who I, is it Down syndrome? Is, is it Down syndrome? Scott? I forget what. No, aut autistic. She's autistic. It's a, she's autistic. Okay, yeah. That, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the fact that the fact that it highlights her character, well, a that it highlights an actor with autism, but also be a character like naturally fits a character in that where it doesn't, it does not feel out of place. It doesn't feel like it's a story about autism. Like it feels like this is a character in a movie um, that, that a, like your central character of, of Cooper is a uh, Cooper race character. Andrew is able to learn from, but it doesn't feel like it's like the, like the autism is being used specifically for that. It feels like a natural character. And I think that the, the film's ability to do that um, just remarkable. Um, I, this is probably my version of like underrated movie. I know a lot of people who definitely do not feel as strongly about me and, and, or, or you, to be frank. I mean, you had it very high on your list as well. It's a film that I think we felt very similarly after we saw it, but, uh, you know, revisiting this film and feeling the same way about it. The second time I watched it, I, I can, I, I do kind of see like the, the critiques of the film. You, you even mentioned it. Like you, you can understand sort of why people might be turned off or turned away by the cheesiness or the uh, over earnestness of the film. But I think there's a place for that kind of writing and filmmaking. And I think because the experiences are so sort of just like leveled at, at things that I connect with that, that, and, and as someone who I, I have found different points in my life is are, I am very, and I'm a, I can be a very overly earnest person at times like Cooper Rafe. Um, maybe less so than I used to be, but I, I can just see so much of that in me as well. I think that I'm, I, it's really easy for me to look past, um, you know, maybe some of those negatives and that's why it's at number four of the year. Yeah. I, I, I can't disagree, Scott. Yeah. I, I do understand why people wouldn't like, I, I, I don't understand some of the vitriol, I guess, that I've seen, um, for the movie, which I have seen on film Twitter, unfortunately, but, um, yeah, you know, you're either going to be picking up what the movie's putting down or you're not. Yeah. It is that kind of experience. Um, there are so many corners of film Twitter that are just so yeah. cynical and like cynical. If you're cynical, you're not going to enjoy this movie. That's just the truth. Like, you're no. just probably not going to enjoy the film. You shouldn't even watch it. And like you should you should know ahead of time just from looking at the trailer that you're not going to enjoy it. But anyway, that's a whole nother sidebar. Um, yeah. Again, I love I just love seeing somebody of our generation making movies about our generation that it feels like 
yeah you know it, it's not not that i could make obviously but you know that it's not uh, unrealistic like um, sure. the messiness of the the film being put together and the fact that it is so emotionally forthright compared to you know any other film any yeah. your you know your average film by an older filmmaker so um it's it, they're not quite the same age but Cooper Ray really feels like the filmmaker equivalent again not the same themes and not the same age but like of a, of our for our generation like the filmmaker equivalent of like Sally Rooney in novels like Sally Rooney is writing like particular types of experiences for people of our generation obviously much more heavily romance focused than Cooper Rafe is I mean there's a romantic element of course for Cooper Rafe's um movies but like I feel like they're unique voices in art telling telling stories for our generation like that are temporally relevant it's not like a child it's not like our mm -hmm. nostalgic childhood rip. like after sun like charlotte wells is someone of our generation telling a story that our generation can certainly relate to but it's not temporally associated right like after sun is about this looking back on a store like on an experience you had 20 years ago whereas this one is like like i feel like i i had these exact same, some of these exact same emotions like four years like three or four years ago you know like it's it's just yeah. like a little bit closer in in time yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, Sally Rooney might be like a little more intellectually rich, I guess, than these films That's are. Fair. But That's um, yeah, in terms of like speaking to our generation, I, I totally get the comparison. All right, Scott, moving along to my number four, and we're going back to your number 10. As a matter of fact, it is Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Um, I just loved watching this movie, Scott. Um, I was so excited to see what Spielberg, you know, one of the the all-time greats, um, could could do with his own entry in this, you know, genre. Which, as you stated, you know, we've seen quite a few of them um, recently. The filmmakers sort of depicting their own childhood, but this one stands out. It stands tall among the pack. And I, you know, I think you were hinting at it a little bit earlier, but I I definitely agree that. People who walk out of this and are like, man, this was a, you know, touching love letter to the movies or this was a touching love letter to Steven Spielberg's ego, I think are just not really processing what's going on in this movie uh, because it's so much more complicated and complex than that. You know, you would expect maybe that Steven Spielberg, like the great mainstream filmmaker, would make something that is just conventionally, you know enjoyable heartwarming whatever family entertainment kind of like he's made a lot of in his career um but no in a similar way to armageddon time to some extent he is trying to process um some things about his own life and his relationship to his family and um and how that has reflected his relationship to his art as well because from the very opening scene of this movie and they're outside the movie theater you have his father who's pulling him to one side and saying here's how a movie works right and explaining in scientific and technical detail you know here's exactly what a movie is and how it's projected and all of that and then you have his mother pulling him over to her side and saying you know movies are dreams you will never forget and all these sort of platitudes that um, speak to sort of his inner dreamer and then you realize you know that those two sides are constantly at play within him and have made him the filmmaker that he is. He would not be Steven Spielberg if he didn't have the creative side that his mother gave him. And if he didn't have like the rigorous technical side that his father gave him. Um, 
And it would be one thing to if the movie stopped there and said, you know, oh, well, it's a lovely tribute to his parents, right, who inspired him to become a filmmaker. But it's that's not what the movie is going for, um, because instead it is about how the complicated relationship with his family um, and his art kind of clash and how there comes a time in the movie where there, there comes a time in, in the movie and in his life where Sammy, Stephen, um, had to choose one or the other. And he decides sort of that he is going to, you know, not completely abandon his family, but um, not prioritize his family and prioritize his art instead um, as being the most important thing in his life. And that is how, that is what allowed him to become um, the master filmmaker that he is. Um, there were sacrifices, painful sacrifices that he's had to make make along the way and you know yes he is a very good filmmaker and the film never depicts him as anything but a very good filmmaker but it's not an easy thing for him to deal with and he actually puts down his camera for a you know period of this movie because um it, it's just it's brought him too much um pain in a way because because again like he discovers his mother's affair because he's making a movie about the camping, this camping trip. Um, there's just so much little detail in every single moment of this movie um, that makes it so much more interesting than your average, you know, over sentimentalized, you know, my childhood was great and aren't movies grand and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and I'm Steven Spielberg. Um, it, it's so much more than that. Um, and I think that's what I love about it. But it is also so enjoyable to watch still at the same time. While being a difficult movie, while being, you know, having thorny things to to sift through, big ideas, it is, you know, it has that Spielberg touch to it that makes it just such a such an entertaining, engaging movie to watch. Like it just it just coasts along um, despite not having a whole lot of plot um, from, you know, his childhood to his his adolescence and them moving to um to california and him going to school and you know and him having his first girlfriend chloe east plays the girlfriend she's a, a delight they actually you know so i noticed that at the sag ensemble they nominated the fablemans and they like list who is part of what they consider to be the ensemble and for some reason chloe east is not listed but like david lynch is um and judd hirsch who's only in one scene is listed um i just thought it i was think strange. that's self-explanatory scott you're acting confused but i think that uh that make that makes sense how so i mean judd hirsch and david lynch are much bigger names than chloe east i don't know that they're actually yeah, listing okay. everyone who counts in the ensemble i think they're i think they're just naming like principal cast okay that that very well may be true um but anyway She's definitely a standout in the movie. And and sure. like I said at the time, and like people have been saying, it's like a Skylar Gisondo and Licorice Pizza type performance where she's a real scene stealer. And obviously you can say the same for Judd Hirsch and David Lynch. I mean, that last scene is incredible. Um, when he goes to John Ford's office, John Ford played by David Lynch and, and gets the advice from him. And then, you know, the final shot of the camera adjusting to make sure that the horizon is at the bottom um, is, you know, amazing um it's just you know such a fascinating um look at one of the all-time great filmmakers um and you know a much more difficult movie than you might expect 
but a better movie on every level because of that. Um, so, yeah, The Fablemans, it will make you believe in the power of movies, but with some reservations. With great power comes great responsibility because that, you know, power yeah. can be used for evil. And, you know, right before that last scene, Paul Dano has an amazing scene um, that you talked about earlier, Scott, where he's, um, you know, he sort of realized that um, that his son, you know, is at this point where he he needs to pursue his art and leave all of the rest of it behind for his own good. Um, And he's having to come to terms with that. And he says a line to him, um, you know you and I are always going to know each other, which is just like a heartbreaking line to me. The fact that his, this is his father, right? The person who knows him best um, in the world is saying you and I are always going to know each other. Um, like he's kind of a, you know, a stranger and like he can sense that um, an estrangement is about to happen uh, between the two of them. It's a, it's a simple line, but it's very heartbreaking. Uh, just like so much of what Spielberg does, it may seem straightforward on paper, um, but the execution of it is there's so much more to it. And that you can say the whole, that about the, this entire film, Scott. Right on. All right. Uh, we are into the thick of it, Scott. Your number three movie of the year. Let's hear it. Yeah, for me, the top three really stood apart um, from the rest of the year. And Scott, I have slaved over the position of my top three films. I've gone back and forth, back again, forth, and back one more time. And I've settled at uh, number three, uh, a little film, Micro Budget, I think it's called, uh, Avatar The Way of Water. So Jim Cameron takes a 13-year, I don't know, vacation, not, because apparently for 13 years, he was making the sequel to the biggest movie of all time. And, you know, I, I it has been fashionable for years to say that the original Avatar film is just sort of like it, its success is inexplicable or to say it, its success is just because they did 3D really well or whatever. Like, that's how it made all its money. It's just people really thought 3D was cool back then. And when I got the chance to revisit the first Avatar film in theaters, 3d imax experience of course they had they had remastered parts of the film as well so it's not like it was in its you know original untouched form from back in 2009 when the first film came out i walked out of the film and i was like i don't know what people are talking about it's not like this film is a masterpiece but this is a good blockbuster like this is a solid film and at that point i felt pretty confident that avatar the way of water was going to be a very good movie. Um, Jim Cameron had been toiling away in New Zealand or wherever he's been developing technology so he can better shoot underwater scenes, which we knew were going to be a significant portion of the way of water. And we arrive in 2022, Scott. I thought the film was going to be very good. And I was stunned by how good this film was incredible uh avatar the way of water it's 192 minutes you mentioned it already earlier that it's over three hours long and it just feels like the entire time just flies by you never really check your watch 
it's cleanly segmented into three parts. Your first part where you're sort of caught up on what is driving the Sully family to seek refuge away from the mountains, uh, the Hallelujah Mountains, where they call their home in the forest, to the Metcaina tribes and the reefs off of the coast of Pandora. And the second part is life in, with the Metcaina, getting to know um, the way of water, quite literally. And then the third act is just all all juice. The action is the juice, and it was all juice. And I was just my like literally jaw on the floor for like half the movie. It looks so freaking good. All the people like memeing the trailer about like Jake Sully's hand on the rope or whatever, being like, <laughs> "This is what Jim Cameron was working on for thirteen years. Like, what was he doing?" Like. They they all can go home and I don't know watch Aquaman or whatever the hell they want to do, um, because the film is gorgeous. Y yes, the underwater stuff is unbelievable, um, like truly just probably visually one of the greatest movies ever made. But also even the stuff not in underwater, like even the stuff in the first act of the film, revisiting the same scenery in quotation marks that we saw in the first film, like. It still looks amazing. I don't know what else to tell you guys. Like the film just looks unbelievably good. And loath as I am to say it in the year of our Lord 2022, Sam Worthington apparently is a good actor. I don't know. Um, he's very well. Good. Let's let's not get ahead of ourselves. He's fine in this movie. To say he's a good oh, he's, actor, or something he's better than entirely. fine in this movie. I think he is good in this movie. I think Zoe Saldana continues to be a real standout in the cast. She has a lot less to do in the way of water than I'd say she did in the first film. Um, because I think there are a lot more members of the supporting cast, specifically the children that come into focus in this film. Of course, they weren't present in the, in the first film to be fair, but yeah, th th this really becomes like a family drama for like half of the film in the middle. And who knew that we wanted a family drama on Pandora as the Sully sort of integrate themselves into this new tribe. And I, I really do think the kids are being underrated. I mean, of course the Gorney Weaver, I mentioned it on our podcast. The first time you hear Sigourney Weaver's voice coming out of this like teenager's mouth, it's it's it is a bit weird. I think we can all come to the table and agree that it's a bit weird. But I think that her performance, you know, obviously everything's intentional. What Jim Cameron is doing is intentional. What he's doing with this is very clearly going somewhere. Um, and I have my full faith in that. But I also think that it seeming so weird also gives a good context to like Kiri as a character um, being an outsider, an outcast, someone who is viewed as different, obviously her interests. Um, like she's got, like there's a, there's a notable scene in the film where she's being made up for being a freak. And I think that the fact that Sigourney Weaver, who is like, you know, 50 years or older or more than Kiri um, is in terms of age. I think that adds an element to it that sort of like almost fits right in. With that, even if it is a bit um, eyebrow raising, I think when you first start to hear this, this voice that said, I think Britton Dalton is like super underrated in this film. He plays Loak, who is sort of like the. He's the second son, um, the younger son, and he is the person who I think the film really sort of starts to center on once they move um, from the Hallelujah Mountains to the Metcaina reefs and his sort of trials and tribulations as not being the son his father wants him to be and him feeling like an outcast him 
his like relationship and bonding with the with the Metkayina children of the same age and his relationships with them and then also his relationships with with Payakan, the Tolkun whale like creature. I think that those are some actually really effective um, and underrated parts of the film. And then please come on the the stuff that they that Jim Cameron does in the third act of this film with the action sequences. I was talking about the gulch and the run from Nope. That is is them trying to get that Oprah shot with Jean Jacket in the gulch. I think up there on the same plane as that is when Pyacon comes up and smashes the boat in the third act of the film. And then you see uh, and then like right before that and right after that, you sort of see from overhead shots all of the Navi sort of riding in on their like, I don't know, like seahorse type creatures. Right. And the score that, um, oh man, I'm forgetting the composer's name right off the top of my head right now. It is Simon Franklin. Simon Franklin. Yes, I was going to say Peter Franklin, but I knew that wasn't right. Simon Franklin. Um, the score set to that scenes like that is just chills um, for me, like instantly iconic scenes for for me in action films, right up there with Nope. And like I said, it, you know, all juice in the third act. The fact that it's sort of just relentless in its continued action sequences and the quality of those action sequences, I just think is remarkable. And we've talked several times already on the podcast today about we shouldn't have doubted X filmmaker or Y actor. Like we shouldn't have doubted Tom Cruise. We shouldn't have doubted who was the other person we talked about that we doubted Scott. I've already forgotten Spielberg Spielberg. Right. Yeah. We shouldn't have doubted Spielberg. Scott, I think fair to say, even though I expected the film to be good by the time it was coming out, we shouldn't have doubted Jim Cameron either. And again, I don't know if we're that big of an offender of doubting Cameron um, in this in this respect, but there was certainly a lot of disrespect. Um, still is a lot of disrespect, frankly, out there. There's a lot of people who have made their mind, minds up about this movie uh, before they oh, saw yeah. it. And, you know, whatever. Weird way to live, live your life, but go for it, I guess. Enjoy Babylon, watching Babylon four times or whatever yeah. you're probably doing. Um, I watched I watched Avatar several times and I've enjoyed it every time. And I look, I, it's a film that we talked about Top Gun Maverick instantly getting vaulted up into a great sequel conversation for me. I know you probably don't feel exactly the same way, but for me, this is up there in that conversation as well. And I love this movie. I love the visuals. I love the score. I like the performances a lot. And I just love this world. I haven't really talked about that, but Pandora I always liked it in the first film as well. I thought it was one of the strongest elements of the first film. But the fact that Cameron was able to take that, reaffirm your sort of baseline knowledge of Pandora in the first act, and then massively expand the world, and not just in terms of going to a different, you know, like a you know biome or or you know geography, but also over time, right? The fact that there's been you know 16 plus years have passed since the first movie, and you can see how things have developed there, um, and and but the world is still super lived in both from a Navi perspective, but also from when the humans return and that year passes and they're trying to sort of resettle parts of the island and create this second earth, right? They're talking about how they need to, they need to make Pandora habitable um, because Earth is dying. And, you know, you can roll your eyes or whatever at that sort of being a cheap setup. But I also think that it provides a really perfect context for more world building that's happening on there and let Jim Cook. Avatars 3, 4, and 5 apparently are in the pipe. Yeah, uh, I'm with you, Scott. Uh, you know, obviously I had it in my 11 through 20 
Um, I said my thoughts there. I will kind of just rest on your words because you are the avatar Stan, of course, of the two of us. But uh, I'm the Navi. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an awesome movie. Um, also, it, can we yeah, just talk about it, how it, real it is that he just he just lets Stephen Lang come back and be the villain again? Like, I know people like rolled their eyes at that, but like, that's so real. Like, he was so real. Look, for that. I think he was my favorite performance in both movies. Like, I, I really do. I think he's he's great as as Colonel Corridge. But yeah, all time great sequel, maybe. Um, but not James Cameron's best sequel. That's Terminator Two. I will say. Well, it's that crazy that, sure. that 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 Big Jim has. I would say three sequels now in the sure, conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, pretty nuts. Name another director with three sequels in the conversation uh, for that. Obviously, I mean, that four if you want to count Piranha Three or whatever his first movie was. Uh, but no, sure. That's supposed yeah, to be we can count it if you want to, Scott. If you want to throw it in there, I'm happy. I'm happy to have a podcast where we talk about Piranha Three as being a great sequel of all time. I, I'm good. Uh, I think it's supposed to be terrible. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I will we say sorry. One. <laughs> One one last quick thing, um, like because like, this is on the note of the Corridge stuff. So cool that Jim Cameron's just like totally fine with like just like really bad dudes getting the shit beat out of them. Like talking about like the Tolkien like poachers or whatever, just getting absolutely wrecked in that scene. Like so satisfying, just like really, oh yeah, really satisfying stuff. Um, anyway, Titanic throwback, really, it really is. Sure, yeah. Speaking of which, uh, you know, coming back to theaters. Also, last thing before we go to your number three, Scott, Jack Champion, who plays Spider, the human, the human kid who thinks he's Navi. Um, good. I thought he was good. I thought he was really good. I didn't think that they could make humans like that, but they do, apparently. He's he's being memed a lot on the Internet. They're they're beating him up a little bit on the Internet. But, yeah, I thought he was fine. Yeah, he, uh, you he know, was good. Small, it's just kind of a whack character. Yeah. Totally. The guy. I mean, look, his name's Spider. Like, what do you what do you expect? He's the craziest awesome. white boy in the galaxy, according to me. <laughs> That's some Tarzan shit right there. Let's go. Find it hard to disagree. Um, all right, Scott. Moving on to my number three. We're we're uh, you know sort of treading over familiar territory now at this point. But uh, my number three. You mentioned it earlier. All the beauty in the bloodshed. Um, yeah. Scott, this documentary you know i've actually this is my third year in a row now having a documentary in the top five of my um list last year i had summer of soul before that i had time in 2020 um and all three of these documentaries have felt to me like these sort of it is an achievement from a filmmaking standpoint yes to sort of tell this story um but also the fact, like the the mere existence of the film itself, feels like a work of activism in a way. Um, you know, time being about um, this man who was wrongfully imprisoned. Uh, well, not wrongfully imprisoned actually, but just imprisoned for longer than he should have been. Um, and then Summer of Soul being this, you know, footage from the Harlem Cultural Cultural Festival that Questlove just sort of unearthed. And then, you know, uh, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed being this film that sheds light on a particular person um, and her career that is largely unknown. Um, at least to me, it was it was unknown. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are people in the art world who obviously are familiar with Dan Golden. But to, to most people who watch this film, I think yeah. it, it will be a, an unknown story, not just about who she is, but also 
her fight against the Sackler family. You may not be even familiar with who the Sackler family are. Again, I wasn't in their role in the whole opioid crisis um, and everything. And it just feels like, like I wish these movies, these movies like need to be shown in schools, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like they, they, it feels like they are like true, truly educational, but also like they are, yeah, I don't even know social, what I'm trying to say. Social but again, studies classes, their works for sure, act- should. Their works of activism and cultural importance. Like, they're not just like, you know, your standard run-of-the-mill documentaries. Like, they oh. are living, breathing documents, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, but in the case of this film, Scott, you know, you, you mentioned kind of what the what the biggest criticism, not that it's getting a lot of criticism, it's a very praised film, but to the people who have not necessarily fully connected with it, which is that they kind of wish it would focus on one or the other, right? Is it, is it, are we going to focus on her life story or are we going to focus on this, you know, current story of her fighting the Sacklers instead of trying to do both? Um, I just don't think this film would be nearly as good um, or that the point would really come across if they didn't try to do both. Because the point is, as we learn from her life story, that she has been an outcast and connected with outcasts sort of her entire life, right? From the very beginning, like she experiences this tragic incident as a child where her sister is basically ostracized from the family, put into a mental home by her parents. Probably just because, yeah, Yeah. probably just because she was gay um, and ends up committing suicide. and I think it was sorry. I think it was more than that, wasn't it? Like there was some gender element to it, like some transgender element to it. I, I, that's just what I read, but maybe maybe I'm maybe okay. I read overread it. I could have overread uh, it. She didn't. Yeah, I mean, she didn't conform to the yeah. social norms of the time, um, sure. and that was a very you know formative experience for Dan Golden, obviously. And so she then goes on to sort of again align herself with these people who are on the margins of society you know it's the drag queens right it's later on it's the people who are um uh who have aids right she's very involved with the aids crisis and it's you know drug addicts herself eventually becoming one right like she has survived drug addiction basically very serious drug addiction um and that's you know that's where we sort of pick up with her is now having aligned with people who have been personally affected by the opioid crisis um and finally now after so many years right like she's in her 60s or whatever and she has seen so many of these people that she's aligned herself with you know discarded ignored erased and you know many of them have died um and you know, now this present moment is her saying that she's not, she does, she's not going to let it happen again. Right. And she is, you know, standing up and fighting back um, against the Sackler family and really the entire, our society's, um, you know, uh, attempts and desires to, you know, ostracize drug addicts to have a very particular view of them that is not authentic to their situation. So the the reality of her entire life is what makes it so powerful because again you see she's been exp- everything that she's experienced with again aligning herself with these marginalized groups is why she is doing what she is doing today. Um and so like I think you just have to understand that life story in order for for the Sackler stuff to really connect. Um 
so there's that aspect of it but then yeah like it it's the form of the documentary is really fascinating as you mentioned because it's a lot of just photos and narration but that is what nan golden's art is right her photographs are presented as slideshows like that is she has this famous um you know project called the ballad of sexual dependency that um is a slideshow and it's it's an evolving slideshow it's like it's a different slideshow every single time you see it basically um and so the movie is really faithful to that because it is a series of photographs with narration it's just like you're watching one of nan golden's art pieces and as the film makes very clear her art and her activism are the same thing right like and and the you know again when she's taking pictures of these drag queens when she's taking pictures of these people with aids just the very action of depicting them as they are is like an is an act of activism because everyone else would rather just turn their head pretend like it doesn't exist doesn't want to you know acknowledge the reality of what's going on around them and their role in it potentially um <clears throat> because it's not just the sacklers right it's also these museums and everything who are willing to turn a blind eye to it if the sacklers you know give them all this money um and it takes one museum stepping up and saying you know what we'll take the sacklers names off of, you know we're not going to take money anymore and then only then do the dominoes start to fall but they do start to fall and you know it builds and builds and you know we talked about the one scene in Navalny being, you know, unbelievable. And there's an unbelievable scene in this movie too, where as a part of the settlement agreement that they eventually reach with the victims of the Sackler fam uh, family, um, they have to, the Sackler families have to sit on a Zoom call for two hours and watch these people give testimony about their experiences with the opioid crisis many of them again either like nan golden who have personally um you know been addicts or they have had family members have lost family members and that scene is just brutal of watching them you know and trying to read their expressions like do they feel anything right because these are the sacklers like these are the people right there on the zoom call watching these people telling these heartbreaking stories of their sons and daughters and um you know young people being lost having their lives lost due to the actions of the sacklers and the greed of the sacklers um it's jaw-dropping that something like that ever happened um and to to you know the fact that we get get the footage of them like staring down the people that they have affected and seemingly showing no remorse it's it's chilling um so it's just a it's a stunning film it's it's the most moving film of the year for me um and then you know the final moments where they go back to i think it's moma um and they see that um the sackler wing the name has been removed and it's a positive step um but also the revelations keep coming out for her right that basically when her sister was in this mental institution the doctors like said basically that her mother should have been the one in here instead right like not only um is you know is her sister not probably shouldn't have been in there in the first place or has been in that is in there because of the actions of her parents um but her mom actually is the more psychologically disturbed one and then watching her parents reckoning with that and you know very explicitly expressing their regret 
Like it just that the last 30 minutes just feels like one punch to the gut again, you know, after the other, like it is, it is jaw dropping. Um, but again, her sister is just another one of these people that has died along the way and, um, you know, has been forgotten, ignored, erased, whatever her story and Nan Gold. I mean, I mean, literally erased, right? Like it was hard to find some of the documentation. She had to dig up these documents. Yeah. Um, has made it her life's work to tell these people's stories. And Laura Poitras, I don't even think I've said her name, but the director of the documentary in telling Nan Golden's story is doing something I think just as important as what Nan Golden is doing with her her work. So I never would have thought that this would be a film that I would be that interested in, like just from the description of it. Um, but, you know, after it won um, the... What did it win? The Golden Lion, the Golden Lion at Venice. Yeah. Um, I was like, this is interesting because the documentary doesn't really win that. And now after seeing it, I totally get it. Like this is this goes beyond just like, oh, this is a you know great documentary. This is a masterful film and an incredibly important film as well. I just I'm blown away by it. It is certainly a powerful film. And I think Laura Poitras is fair is rife for culturally and socially important viewing for americans no doubt no doubt top two scott let's hear it what just missed you know you said you were you were really um struggling over your top top two i would imagine so how did it shake out I was struggling with all three of them, Scott. Don't don't you short shrift avatar the way of water there is there were times where it was number one on my list i won't lie um can't i can't deny the feelings that it made me feel um but a couple other films also made me feel things and yeah i almost i almost feel like my number two and number one is like a fight between like left brain right brain but ultimately i settled on number two uh this will give it away to you scott because it is a film you have already talked about it is after sun charlotte wells debut feature film and because we've done a podcast on this movie so recently, I just, I kind of feel like a broken record talking about this, but I'm going to sort of maybe repeat my biggest explanation as for why it's such a personally, such a moving film. You talked about all the beauty and the bloodshed being the most moving film you saw this year. I think after sun was that for me. And I think part of it is because of its narrative structure. I think just plainly put like, I think well-documented on the podcast that, Arrival is one of my favorite movies of all time. One of the primary reasons that that is the case is because of the narrative structure the film takes and the way that it slowly peels back its layers and lets you in on what is actually happening in the film. And I think one of the uniquely brilliant things about Arrival, which I think is also true of After Sun, is that a second watch doesn't diminish the the narrative like some people might call it a narrative gimmick this idea of not burying the lead per se but not making everything super clear at the beginning when you don't have context for what is happening on the screen and i think that after sun is the closest thing that i've seen narrative like narratively um structurally since arrival that uh that comes close to achieving what arrival achieved with that and the experience of watching this film the first time 
is one of those movies. <laughs> not, uh, you know, not that it has too much in common with my number one, but similar to number one where I finished the film and it is immediately there. It just feels like there is so much to digest. It feels like there's so much to mull over and it feels like it immediately deserves and re almost requires a rewatch to fully comprehend everything that, that you've just sort of been put through. You spent a great deal of time earlier talking about the impact and the weight of the Paul Mescal performance in this, which I would, you know, completely echo. I think that it's truly, you know, a borderline tour de force type performance from him in the film, extremely quiet and composed, very insular performance. Again, like you said, a lot of acting without talk, without talking, a lot of showing and not telling. Um, I mean, that's just a microcosm for the film in that sense, because as you mentioned as well, this film is all about just showing you without words um, this dynamic, this relationship between Paul Meskel's <coughs> character and Frankie Corio, who's playing his daughter, Sophie, between Callum and Sophie. And it's just such such a powerful film in that sense. Talked a lot over the last couple of years, I feel like, about films that have this sort of like quiet power to them. I think Broker is one of those movies. Just talk about recency bias. I think Broker is a film with a lot of quiet power. Drive My Car, I think, is like the quintessential film that, you know, it just hits you like a freaking train, I think, in its sort of emotional climaxes. Um, but all the time just being completely quiet. I think After Sun is just like that as well. And again, maybe because I've talked about this film so much so recently on the podcast, I hesitate to dive extremely deep into everything. But Paul Meskel is incredible. I think Frankie Corio even I, I, again in a year where supporting actress, I mean, maybe she maybe you call her a lead actress, to be fair. But, you know, in a year of of, of not the strongest supporting actress category, like I'm honestly kind of surprised with the buzz that has happened around After Sun that she's not getting talked about a little bit more. Um, maybe it's the child actor element of it, I think is always a little can be a little bit of a barrier for breaking into the conversation around that. But the film's brilliant. I think the film's ending is again, it sort of just really comes to a head. And you, you mentioned it when talking about the movie that by not giving you an answer, it's saying all that it needs to say. And I couldn't agree with that interpretation of the film or that analysis of, of the film's ending more. We don't know what we don't know everything that has happened um, or lack thereof happened uh, between Sophie and Callum since this vacation ended, you know, 20 years before or whatever it is. But I will say that um, that's not really the point. We know what we need to know about it. And I think the sort of, what I would interpret as one of the major takeaways, um, emotional takeaways for the film, and obviously for Charlotte Wells, who's it's it's probably impossible for this not to be at least somewhat you know autobiographical in nature. But I think one of the takeaways is just knowing that like there are certain things that are like you said are unknowable um, when you're a child, when you don't have the perspective of adulthood, and you know yes, it's coming to terms with the relationship with her father. But the more that I sit with and ruminate on the film, the more I think that the film is all about um, coming to terms with not only the relationship with the father for Sophie, but also coming to terms with the fact that maybe she's experiencing the same thing that her father is, this sort of listlessness um, in life. You know, the one scene 
the one like real scene that you get of her in the present time is the scene where she wakes up in the middle of the night and you hear her daughter or son. I assume it's a daughter, but maybe it's a son crying in the other room and she tells her partner that she'll go take care of it. And it's not a scene that I think fully registered for me the first time, but one, um, and I didn't notice this until the second time I watched Scott. And I can't remember if I told you this after I watched this second time, but the rug that Paul Meskel get Callum buys is on her floor in the bedroom. Ooh, interesting. Um, yeah, the, at least I think it's the rug. It looks like it at least. But yeah. it, there's a very it, it focuses on the rug and lingers long enough for me to think that it's definitely the rug mm-hmm. that he bought um, <clears throat> that he bought in Turkey. And I think that's incredible. First off, that, that detail, the fact that I missed that the first time is really disappointing. But that detail is incredible, I think. But then two, just start, you sort of see like that. The listlessness that you see Paul Mescal throughout all those quiet moments and flashing back to the vacation. I think you can just see that written all over. Celia Ralston Hall's face, who plays the adult Sophie in the film. And I'm just I'm just wowed. I'm really wowed by this film being able to be made at all, let alone being written and directed by the same person, let alone it being their first feature. Like, it's just crazy. Um, I don't think it's uh, out of pocket to say that it's quite possible that Charlotte Wells never makes a film this good again, because this film is one of the greatest of the last few years in my in by my measure. And I hope she's able to replicate this experience, um, this feature, this quality. But even if she hasn't, she's been able to, you know, even if she ends up being a one hit wonder, which I don't think that's going to be entirely the case. But what she achieved with this is a remarkable feat of filmmaking. And again, the, the sort of like question marks and mystery element of what is real and what isn't real in the film. I think it's it, it is worth contemplating. But also similar to the ending what is like is it important whether it be real or not um i think is a great question to also be asking yourself during it and there again there's no answer given but something to think about look academy if if you want to nominate a female director this year she's right there charlotte well look scott i think there's the the chances are growing i feel like if they're going to nominate a female director this year i think Based on the DGAs, like, I mean, yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, I don't know if I believe it. I, you know, I, I don't think I it's think the likeliest scenario. To be clear, yeah, I still think Sarah Pauly is probably the most likely female to get nominated if they're going to nominate a female director. But you think so? I think that's. I, I, I think that. I think that's that film's dying on the vine. Is the only it's, problem. It hasn't even come out yet. That's the thing. Like, I, I just don't know what yeah. they're doing with this film. Like, I uh, they're pushing back the release. Date. That's what they're doing, Scott. Supposedly <laughs> going to be able to see it next week, but uh, anyway, that's that's another that's a sidebar. But I I don't really understand. All right, Scott, my number two film of the year, and it's one you talked about before, but you talked about it on last year's uh, top ten of Damn the year right, uh, countdown. Um, which is totally fair because you did see the film at a festival last year. However, yep. I think it's equally fair that I included on my list because um, it was it got its wide release in 2022, and I was not able. If, to see if it you can call it that, if you can call it a wide release, sure. Yeah, yeah. I was not able to see it until because uh, you saw it here in New York. I did in May yeah. of 2022, um, and boy, am I glad that I got the opportunity to see this on the big screen. Um, 
It is the latest film by the the masterful Celine Siama, Petite Maman. Um, Scott, this fit honestly, it fits nicely following After Sun because I I kind of made a reference to it earlier, but I thought um, that's what both... you were talking about, but I wasn't yeah. sure if you were talking about Fablemans, <laughs> no, no, or Petite Maman. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I could, but no, yeah, Petite Maman, I think you know, is another sort of quiet film about a child trying to understand what their parent is going through when their parent is experiencing a time of grief. Um, it's a, a small film about a young girl um, named Nellie who is goes to her grandmother's house with um, her mom and dad. Um, her, it's her mother's mother who has just passed away and they are cleaning out the grandmother's house. And while they are cleaning out the grandmother's house, um, the little girl, Nellie, wanders off into the, the woods behind the home and she meets another little girl named Marion who looks exactly like her and who, I mean, it's not a spoiler. There's not a spoiler for this movie, but not a spoiler to say we learn that um, this is actually the younger version of her mother. And so this is um, sort of a magical realist type um, twist that the movie has taken. Um, where obviously she is not literally interacting with the child version of her mother, but there's some sort of um, super supernatural element. Like, it, you know, it's not interested in explaining it and it doesn't need to. It would be a worse film if it did. But um, we don't know why. We just know that she is interacting with the younger version of her mother and um, through those interactions begins to understand a little bit more of um the the grief that her mother is experiencing the fact that her mother very on very early on is is too grief stricken in fact to even finish cleaning out the house and leaves and leaves you know her her daughter and her husband there um and you know there's a scene where nelly is talking to her father and is saying you know I never, you know, I, I never hear anything about your lives, right? Like, you, I don't really know what it was like when you were kids. And I don't know about the little details. Like, I know about, you know, the the big events or whatever. But I don't, I never hear stories about your childhood. And that's really what kind of the whole movie is about, in a way. For a, for a brief moment, she gets a window into what life was like for her mother as a child. And also, crucially, gets to interact with her grandmother. Because, again... Because, um, you know, she express Nellie expresses early on in the film that she regrets um, her last interaction with the grandmother that she didn't say what she wanted to um, because, you know, she didn't know it was going to be the last time she saw her, I guess. Um, and it turns out it's not really because she gets to um, interact with her grandmother again, again, for this brief window of time. Um, and there's just this movie is 72 minutes long. Um, I haven't even said that yet. It's 72 minutes long. It's barely feature length. And it has, you You'll know, be able to watch the, that movie three times instead of listening to our podcast today, if you want to. <laughs> it has the emotional weight of, you know, films that are three times as long. Um, it's, sure. it's unbelievable. The, the depth of feeling that Celine Siama is able to, to bring across in just 72 minutes. Um, you know, on one level, this film is just really like, it's an adorable film watching these these children interact like it's just uh, they are uh, they're two twins um, Josephine and Gabrielle Sands um, 
they're adorable and watching their friendship and watching them vibing out is a huge part of the pleasures of the movie just watching these kids be kids and you know making pancakes and giggling and doing their little plays and everything um it just like the fact that we know it's her interacting with her mother just adds so much to these scenes like which again could otherwise be simple um they just feel like like every single interaction feels like it means so much more um because we understand the context of it um and like every single interaction to me is just like very very moving like you could sit there the whole time and like um and just be tearing up the entire movie i feel like that's just it's it's just so pure in what it is depicting um and you know again it's about nelly trying to understand her mother like the little details and Celine Siama is so good it, also at the show, not tell film filmmaking, but the like blocking and everything like the, you know, she's grabbed, she's pulling her mother to her in the car. And, you know, she's always trying to get closer physically to her mother um, while also trying to, you know, Emotionally get closer okay. to her on a yeah. deeper level. Um, and it, you know, finally in the final scene, right she comes back to the grandmother's house after having said goodbye to um to the younger marion and to her grandmother and she sees her mother has come back and is sitting there on the floor and they sit next to each other and that's the final image we get is they're finally you know side by side because she's finally gained some understanding of her so it's just a beautiful beautiful film um and um celine siama you know for something you know, her previous film being Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which again was also a very deeply felt, but also like very intense emotional experience. Um, for her to come back with something like this, which has such a light touch, but has that exact same weight to it. Um, she's a really, really, you know, brilliant filmmaker. And, um, you know, I, I, of course, I can't wait to see what she does next. I need to watch some of her other um films in her her back catalog um but the two that i have seen i think are, are masterpieces and petite maman was my number one film for a long time this year um and it's one that i will continue to treasure like i want to show this movie to my kids someday like it, it is one of those movies like it, i i really think that like that you could show this movie to a kid um not like a really young kid but um it it's a simple story but it you know yeah it has 100 you know, it, it has a lot to it and messages that I think um, kids could use at from a young age. Like, it's just brilliant. I think it's fully accessible to a lot of ages. And look, there's a reason why on Letterboxd, just looking at it, one of the suggested similar films in the rail is My Neighbor Totoro. Not because yeah. this film is like My Neighbor Totoro, but because I think it is accessible to almost all audiences i think mm -hmm. in, it, in its subject matter and it's just how it presents itself and i remember i remember going into this movie at new york film festival a i was excited to be watching a 72 minute movie i'll be really honest like i sure. at the at the festivals sometimes you watch a lot of really long movies and i remember going into this thing and <clears throat> holy cow like just totally uh I can't say knocked off my feet because, of course, I was sitting down already, but just sort of had the wind knocked from my lungs almost kind of watching just 
the film is just it's sort of arresting in the ways that maybe I was describing Koganata earlier. And I, I feel like I've learned, Scott, that I'm maybe I'm not a French New Wave fan. And instead, I'd rather I'm much more in the bag for someone like Shyama, who's definitely not like definitely she is a more recent filmmaker than the New Wave. To be fair, I don't think you should you should uh, judge Claire Denis by like her recent films. I don't think that anyone would say necessarily that Stars at Noon or Both Sides of the Blade or even High Life are among like the seminal Claire Denis works. But watch Jules and Jim. Watch Francois Truffaut. You may change your mind. It's actually a much more engaging film than people might expect. Sure. Well, and it's not that I don't think Claire Denis movies are engaging. It's just that like, yeah. I find something so much again, I haven't watched all these other French New Wave directors films. You know, it is a limited sample size that I'm going off of. But I have seen like the two movies that I've seen of Celine Shyama. Like, I feel like I am con like they're not even experiences that I've had. Like, I'm not a lesbian in the 18th century or whatever. And I'm not, you know, a little kid feeling, you know, at a distance from my parent. And then I have this fantastic experience. Like, I feel so deeply connected like these stories resonate deeply with me and i again maybe i haven't watched the best films of of that of that you know wave of, of cinema that is totally fair i'm i'm not sure that i'll connect as as much with those films even if i like them sure. a lot as i have with shiama but maybe i should also fix that so you gotta be you gotta be like a talia writer's character and do revenge you gotta just yeah. be popping on a Godard flick every now and then uh, that was so when that line popped in that movie, I was like, holy hell. It's something else, that's yeah. for sure. Um, which is a great transition because we actually both have Do Revenge as our number one film of the year, Scott. So, um, yeah. all right, let's pack it in. Let's go home. Maya sure. Hawkeye. Um, sure. No, Scott. Why not? Uh, we do not have Do Revenge as our number one film. However, for the first time since 2018, yeah. we did it, Joe. We had the same number one film of 2022. So, Scott since you have been on the crusade for months that 2022 is the year of tar i'm gonna throw it to you you have Hell the yeah, floor brother. tell us about the year of tar tell us about the best film of 2022 that we're both agreed on yeah look as first off incredible achievement that we managed to do this a second time i'm just gonna go out there and say it i'm really proud of us um second i have to cite one of the best letterbox reviews of the year and that is Griffin Newman's letterbox review for Tar. And that, uh, Scott, I think it's really important that we separate the Tar from the Tardist. That's, yeah. that's all I got to say about this. Um, look, what is there? What is there to not say about this movie? I, OK, jokes aside, like, you know, I saw this film at the New York Film Festival, a recurring theme, maybe of of my top 10 list, quite a few movies that I saw at the New York Film Festival. But what I will say is that when I watched uh, the first time I watched this movie and then the second time that I watched this movie um, last night, they were I will say they were very different experiences watching the movie. And both times I thought the film was, you know, n nearly, if not definitely a masterpiece. And that, that, that maybe most of all is this is the thing that is just sort of like made me scratch my head a little bit. Like when I watched the film the first time, there's clearly a lot of stuff going on when you watch the movie the first time you like there is a lot of stuff going on that's going over that I think will almost certainly go over your head because like a movie we were just talking about the after sun you kind of almost have to get to the end to understand what's going on at the beginning of, of the movie in a in a meta narrative sense but 
one of the brilliant things about this film is that I don't think it requires two watches to completely be on the wavelength the film is trying to operate on. And I think that's another sort of trademark special element of films like this. And not only is it a brilliantly written film, something that came out even more on the second watch is how clever and careful and measured and specific Todd Field is with the screenplay for this film. But it also just has what is easily no contest whatsoever. Best performance of the year with Kate Blanchett. I mean, she is undeniable as Lydia Tarr, Linda Tarr, whatever you want to call her. Um, Yeah, like it's just unbelievable. It's got like we've been messaging for like the last 24 hours talking about this movie, just like talking about, you know, probably not experience. even talking about an important thing in the movie. But Almost yeah. certainly not talking about an important yeah. thing in the movie. Um, definitely not. But you can talk Scott, about even the non-important things in this movie for days. Like that's totally. how detailed it is. Scott, the reason why I know this is not an important part of the movie is because I went to the Reddit for Tar. And nobody was talking about this part of the movie. <laughs> um, so definitely not an important part of the movie. But it just is one of those things that it feels like you're going to be thinking about what's happening in this movie for days. Not because what is happening is super complex. I mean, there are things to sort of narratively untie and unravel in your, and that you need to work through in the film. But it's not so complex. It's just so engaging and so interesting of a film that it just sort of grabs you. I was texting you last night when I was watching this film for the second time, and I had forgotten just like the first 45 minutes of this movie are unbelievable. Like the acting and writing and framing with the with the camera, unbelievable stuff. You talk about, yeah, the like vibrating. That was me watching this, especially after like weeks of underwhelming films and then coming into the theater and like getting yeah. this. I was like, holy crap. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, there's lots of talk about the Juilliard scene, which is like definitely the best scene in the movie, Um, not just from a performance and a writing standpoint, but also from the camera work. I mean, that that is the main thing, honestly, from my second watch taking it away is like I had forgotten how ridiculous the camera work is in this movie. And the Juilliard scene is all done in one shot. Um, It's like a 10 minute long sequence. I think I was reading where in the script, it's like 12 pages uninterrupted, which is like pretty wild. And it's all captured in camera. It's just insane. It's just insane stuff. And yes, the Juilliard scene's amazing, but even the opening, I won't say opening scene because the opening scene of the film is on the plane, but like the first real meaningful scene in the film after the credits, after the opening credits roll is a New Yorker. Is it New Yorker? I forget what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a yeah. New Yorker interview that Lydia Tarr is giving with Adam Gopnik. And... Scott, like, I remember the first time I watched this, I was I was just like, like, completely captivated from the start with this. You could just listen to the dialogue forever. Like, I mean, really like, little, like, 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 yes, the framing is super interesting and, and relevant. And they're showing you images that are going to be important for later on in the film to remember. But like. It's just two people talking on a stage at the end of the it's day. Somehow like, so, it's somehow so cinematic, despite yeah. like us describing it. If you haven't seen the film, you're like, that sounds like the most boring thing ever, like a freaking NPR forum with Ab- Adam Gobnick. Which is 100% what it is. Um, yeah. yeah, some freaking 
you know, higher than thou conductor. Like, why do I care about this? This sounds like watching paint dry. But somehow it's just it's elevated. Yeah, I mean it's Kate Blanchett on some level. I mean that's that also the right. It's also Adam Gopnik. Let's. I mean, come on, let's show some. Respect. Sure, yeah, but, he's yeah, great <laughs> playing himself. But look, I I just think that those two, like the combo, the one-two punch of those scenes. I mean, there are some other scenes in the middle there that I think are just as captivating. You know, Scott, one of the main finds you had on the rewatch is like discovering the bag right from the woman mm -hmm. in the scene, and then also something that that I was thinking about is that. At the start of the scene in the hotel where she's like washing, she's like doing the NP, like she's listening to NPR or whatever and like doing the voice. You hear a door close in the at the beginning of that scene. I think heavily implying that that woman like came over to her hotel room. And well, right. Yeah, because there's the question of how did she get the bag? And there's really only two explanations. One is she just went and bought an identical bag, which unlikely. doesn't seem. Yeah. Well, yeah, which seems unlikely. And the other, of course, is that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and her wife and Sharon, you know, Haas's character, like, makes a comment, like, she suspects maybe from the very beginning, right, that there's something weird going well, on here. Because more than that, I think she even says at the end is just, like, basically saying, like, I know this is happening, and I've always looked past it, because yeah. we have an understanding or whatever, like, you know, not, not mm -hmm. to get way ahead in the movie. But, but sort of the opening 45 minutes, all the way up until she returns to Germany, I mean, I think the thing is still captivating after that, but, like, that first, you know, 45 minutes of the film, it's just... Like, and everything gets set up thematically. Like I mean, that's the thing. Almost right? yeah. everything gets set up in the first scene and and in the Juilliard scene. Like uh, you know, everything that we're going to see play out. Every like major the theme. Seed, the seeds are being planted. One hundred percent. And you kind of get the sense that that's happening. I think the first time you watch, it, like you, you clearly know that like this twenty-minute interview that she's giving or whatever is like okay. Like what she's saying is like probably going to be important for the rest of them. Like you know that when you're mm -hmm. watching it. But going back the second time, having known how everything plays out in the film, it's like it's like truly I mean, look, it, it's. To call it clever, of course, is like maybe kind of a bland way to describe it, but it's just like it's smart, but like the way that it's framed and like the fact that it doesn't feel for, like obviously it's narrated and structured in a way so that it can set itself up really effectively. But at the same time, like it just makes sense, like it doesn't feel out of place that she's saying all these things and the irony should not be lost on the audience of everything that she's saying. And, and then to your point, everything that comes after as, as sort of being in, in conversation with, or sort of in opposition to almost what she's the words she's saying later on. There's just, and then, I mean, I'll, I'll want to toss things over to you at some point because Kate Blanchett's amazing. Nina Haas as Sharon, her, her wife is also incredible. Noemi Merlant, who plays her personal assistant, um, Francesca, is probably the second best performance for me in, in the movie. I think it's a smaller role than you get from Nina Haas as Sharon, but I think more almost more mileage per per minute on the screen going for for her there. Um, speaking of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but. Overall, Scott, I'll say there's just so many small details in this movie. We were talking, you know, we were referencing the one of the ones we were talking about um, going back and forth on for like the last for the last day. But there's just so many of those. Some of them, I think you're able to decipher a little bit more easily than others. But I also think as this film sort of like erupts to its conclusion, I think the breakneck pace is intentional, like things spiraling out of control are intentional. 
the small details, which you may not be able to make sense of are intentional because frankly, Tar can't make sense of any of it either. And I think that's the point. And overall, Kate Blanchett should win the Oscar. It's the best performance of the year. Todd Field. I go back and forth because I think this performance, like this direct writing, directing combo is really in contest with Charlotte Wells for me. And the films are obviously doing very different things with what with what they're doing. But, you know, between the two of them, best directing, best writing, in my opinion, of the year. It's screenplay just, just if it doesn't win, it's going to be an absolute travesty, in my opinion, for screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. Original screenplay wise, it's I mean, it's in. It's incredible stuff. Um, and yeah, some of the small details that you don't see on the first watch, but then maybe you read about or you catch on the second watch. Ghosts in the corner, stuff like that. Just like nuts stuff that's going on. Like some of the small draw, like like drops, like, uh, you know, you can kind of see how uh, like specific characters needle each other. One of the things that I've really been sort of thinking about a lot since the second watch is Sophie Cower, who plays Olga, this sort of a spot, this sort of new cellist who joins the uh, Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra that Tar. I, I like at first, I kind of just thought of her as someone who was sort of ambivalent or irreverent, someone who just doesn't care about Tar's affection or Tar's attention. The more that I feel I think about this movie, though, I feel like she's just as much a snake as everyone else in this film. And that's something that I necessarily had a full hearted belief about the first watch. But the second watch, I think not only is, is she. Has she no reverence for Tar's. Antics or her prestige or her prowess, but she's just as much as Tar would like to use her for, you know, sexual exploits or whatever you want to call them for sexual favors. Uh, I think Olga is using Tar and playing her like an absolute fiddle. And it's just a remarkable performance top to bottom. There's not a bad performance in this, in this film and Todd field, maybe even um, in contest with Kate Blanchett for best performance in this film, because his writing directing is, you can see it all over the place. I mean, obviously Todd fields, you know, mentor is, Stanley Kubrick, who he he was in Kubrick's last film. He was yeah. in Eyes Wide Shut. Eyes Wide Shut, yeah. And it absolutely has the same meticulousness as a Kubrick film. Um, he he has done his his master proud for sure um, with with this film in particular. And you know, Scott, I wrote as I want to do with what ends up being my number one movie of the year. I wrote a very long letterbox review on this. It might have been the longest letterbox review I've ever written, actually. Um, where I shared a lot of my thoughts and interpretations on the major themes in this movie. And so I I won't go into it that much because it's already been a long podcast and I would invite everyone to go read my thoughts over there because they will be more articulate than anything I've said on this podcast, I'm sure. But um, yeah, this, I, you know, obviously I loved it on the first watch, but then I actually read a short article that David Sims had written about for Slate, I believe it was, um, about the ending of the movie and his interpretation. And then I went and watched it again. And I think I agree with him and it makes me appreciate the movie even more. And sort of the the idea is on one level, yes, it is about cancel culture. And I think the main point which we're getting at is, and which Field is getting at is kind of that everyone is kind of in it for the wrong reasons, right? Like obviously 
Kate Blanchett, like obviously Lydia Tarr is, you know, done some despicable things and deserves to be held accountable for them. But nobody who is doing the canceling and nobody who's in Lydia Tarr's orbit is really seemingly in it for the right reasons. Like this only comes out because because Lydia Tarr passes up Francesca, passes up Noemi Merlot's character for um, a a promotion or a, a spot in a the position orchestra. in the orchestra. Yeah, a spot in the orchestra. Um, and so, you know, out of vengefulness, Francesca then goes and sort of releases, yeah. you know, and that story. only happens because Sharon is and Sharon is needling her yeah. about it. And gas, uh, frankly, almost gas, like borderline gaslighting her about it. So everyone is only in it for their own benefit. Um, and once, you know, once Tar can no longer offer Francesca a benefit, you know, she's going to get hers another way, which is by getting her revenge. Um, so that's the cancel culture stuff. But this movie is also about a failing artist, an, an artist who once was great, once achieved, you know, has achieved a, a huge power of notoriety, and now the times have passed her by, and she cannot come to reality with it. And again, you see that from the beginning. Um, and the fact that, you know, sort of the, the undercurrent in the whole movie, the, I mean, she's a woman, right? And um, we get the sense that, yes, she has done despicable things obviously to get to her position of of power and if it was a man that would be the end of it but we can't help but empathize with her on some level because we know as a woman you know she has had to 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 quote the film obliterate herself and everything that she knows and loves basically in order to get herself to this position and probably subordinate herself and suck up to men and basically make herself a man in effect. I mean, she, she has masculinized herself in so many ways and all of her influences that she mentions are men. Um, the way she dresses, she says, I'm Petra's father to the child at the schoolyard. Um, and so, so because she is a woman, there's so much more complexity to it. And because we realize that, she has had to to do this to get to where she is. Um, the only way she could achieve that sort of success is by obliterating herself, so to speak. Um, but now that she's in power, she's abusing it just like everybody else is. Um, and she's, you know, grooming people basically and trying to groom Olga, as we see in the movie. And, you know, again, there's other stuff like um, her interactions with Olga in the beginning, you know, like even what they order for lunch it's like oh she's trying to get her to order the salad or whatever which is probably what she ordered a billion times when she was at lunch with men or whatever you know to just like present this particular image of her but olga orders like this big huge meal and is like diving in because women don't have to do that anymore right like now we're at a place in the culture where she can you know watch these videos on youtube and you know that's it. You know, she doesn't have to go through this intense, rigorous process that Tar did in order to get to where she is. Um, and, you know, even Tar early on is having that conversation with Mark Strong's character about their like grant program or whatever it is. And is like, you know, I, I don't think we should be accepting just women anymore. 
Like, you know, we were doing something at one point, like we were trying to make a statement, but now we don't need to anymore. Um, and so Tar is losing her grip on the world. She's losing her grip on reality. And, you know, it, it all comes to a head when her past is exposed and what she once thought didn't matter because it was art from the artist is now, you know, our society looks at this in a totally different way. And before she can even process what's going on, she's like been completely canceled. She is exiled basically over uh, abroad. And the last scene is basically her sort of rediscovering her, the reason she she did this in the first place, which is because she actually did love music at some point. We don't really see it in the movie because she's so distracted with every other BS, with all the other BS that's going on. Um, but she discovers that she actually, you know, did love music at one point, and that's why she was in this. She is back to being herself, that self that she once obliterated. But the great ironic twist is that, you know, she has rediscovered this, and what she is composing is the soundtrack for Monster Hunter video game in Japan. Um, it's well, it's not in Japan, but it's uh, it's it's the video game Monster Hunter World, but like in like Malaysia. It looks like okay, in Malaysia, yeah, it's yeah. like a concert in Malaysia. Um, but th this is the interesting part too, because I've been thinking more about this because I do agree for the most part with this read. But I think she's like not only she, but she's still obliterating herself like to herself because as a conductor for this as a guest conductor for this, you know, score that's being performed live in front of, you know, a cosplaying audience. She's not even all those things that she's talking about, like the job of the conductor at the beginning of the movie. She's barely even doing those things because a video game concert is actually set to usually some sort of gameplay or footage from the game. And you sort of see that start to happen at the end of the film. And she's handed this headset that she puts on which is actually the metronome that sets the time to keep you in line with the video. So she's obliterated herself in front of everyone and God, like she talks about at Juilliard. And then at the end to, as a process of rediscovering maybe that love, because I do think that's, that's part of the read. She's obliterating herself to herself as a part of this. Maybe, but, but also again, like the whole, I am more than just a metronome type thing. That's just her ego, right? Like it's it's kind of ridiculous what she's even saying in the beginning of like you cannot start with me and all, you know all of this like I am so much more than the person who's just like it's clearly comes from her having an elevated sense of herself. Well that that and the and the fact that she feels like she needs to interpret music for people, right? Or that she yes, does the conductor yes. job is to interpret music, which is like right, maybe the right. less metronomy part of it. But yeah. But now, at the end of the film, again, she has returned to, like, the basic elemental state of who she once was as a, you know, aspiring musician, conductor, whatever. And in doing so, she has obliterated that ego, uh, or the ego has been obliterated because she's been brought back down to earth. Yeah. And she is kind of the metronome. I, I mean, this is to your point, I guess, but she is kind of now the metronome um because she has lost that sense of self-importance about the role of the conductor anyway yeah. we could go on she, and on she she and uh and ray fines from the menu need to have a convo about rediscovering yeah. their love for the art that they yeah became famous for we could go on and on scott nobody's still listening at this point i would assume so um 
maybe we just want to. I think people are because it's a fascinating film to talk about. But I'm yeah. I'm mainly joking, but um, yeah, like all of that stuff. I mean, I've talked about the and more themes of the movie, but it's also you know the the basic elements of it are are you know exceptional. And like I said, the screenplay it's going to be a joke if it doesn't win the Oscar. It's like the most. Um, you know, enriching dialogue that I've heard in so long. Um, and Kate Blanchett's performance. I mean, she is going to win. So there's really no suspense about it. And she deserves it. It's it's an all-time performance. It, it really is. It's going to go down in, in history, I think. Um, and, it, you know, the, the character has just become so much larger than life. Like, you mm-hmm. know, the, the Lydia Tarr character on film Twitter and whatnot. And getting memed and all this stuff like it's, it's just it's incredible what todd field was able to do and come back after 16 years after his last movie and make something that feels like it took 16 years to make but also could have only been put together in the last few years because of the ideas that it's touching on um yeah extraordinary film after the second watch it had to be number one for me and uh we were agreed scott that's right all right. Well, we are barely almost at four hours, Scott. So I think we should probably wrap it up, don't you think? It's the year of tar. Time to wrap up. It was the year of tar, Scott. Um, and we hope you've enjoyed listening to all of our podcasts during 2022, the year of tar. Um, Do you want to run through our, to- our, ten, our top tens again or no? Go r- run it down real quick. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll skip the 11 through 20. Top 10, though. Uh, number 10, The Fablemans. Number 9, Armageddon Time. Number 8, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Number 7, After Yang. Number 6, Nope. Number 5, Top Gun Maverick. Number 4, Cha-Cha Real Smooth. Number 3, Avatar, The Way of Water. Number 2, Aftar Sun. I'm kidding, After Sun. And number 1, best film of the year, is Tar. Year of Tar. And my 10, Scott. Number 10, I had Nope. Number 9, I had a tie between Pearl and X. Number eight, I had Decision to Leave. Number seven, White Noise. Number six, After Sun. Number five, Top Gun Maverick. Number four, The Fablemans. Number three, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Number two, Petite Maman. And I agree, the best film of the year, Tar. Um, and that will do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. And for another year of the podcast in the books, onward we go to 2023. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about that Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. But even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. Do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. Follow us on social media. I didn't mention that, but Scott's at S. Shelton 2013 everywhere. I'm at Scarvey Dent everywhere. Just posted a new TikTok today. So check me out over there as well. Um, And of course, we hope you'll be back for our next episode. And Scott, it's a fitting next episode because the other film that we were once agreed upon was the best film of the year back in 2018 was Anish Shiganti's Searching. And next week, we will be reviewing the follow-up to Searching produced by Anish Shiganti, another on-the-computer-screen set thriller. Written by him as well. This time, the film is called Missing. Uh, We'll be kicking off 2023 films. We kind of kicked it off with Megan, but we'll be diving right into 2023 with Missing next time on the podcast. Uh, But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.